Hello everyone, welcome back. This is Ranching Reboot, the podcast that plays the tune of transformation in agriculture. I'm your host, Red Hills Rancher. This episode made possible by my amazing patrons on patreon.com slash Rancher and my awesome subscribers on Spotify. They're the ones keeping Ranching Reboot on the air. It's fall here in the Red Hills and hunting season is in full swing. If you're still looking to get some birds or maybe a deer, be sure to check out Land Trust. For all you landowners, personally, I like to check out what other farmers and ranchers are offering to gain some inspiration for what I want to offer. Click the link in the show notes or on my link tree to learn more. Episode Q&A and the polls are back this week, so be sure to check those out on Spotify. If you're not on Spotify listening, please be sure to give the other show supporters some love. Grassroots Carbon, Magic Mind, Bobo Links from Blue Nest Beef, and the Autobahn Conservation Ranching Program. Just click on the links in the show notes to learn more. Another link you'll find in the show notes is for my Ranching Reboot Discord server. It's a place where fans and friends can hang out and chat about whatever's on your mind. Discord's pretty easy to use, either on desktop or on mobile, so what are you waiting for? Come join us. On this week's episode, we're turning up the volume on Tyler Tobald's switch from music and monoculture to diving deep into the rhythms of regenerative farming. From the high notes of cover crop benefits to the baseline of land and labor woes, we're covering it all. Tune in and turn a new leaf on your agricultural practices. The longest field goal ever attempted is 76 yards. The longest field goal ever missed? Also 76 yards. Why bring this up? Because knowing your limits matters, both when you're kicking a field goal and when you gamble. Betting more than you're comfortable with is like trying a 70-yard field goal. It probably won't go well. So set a limit when you gamble and stick to it. Want more helpful tips like this? Go to KeepItFunOhio.com for games, quizzes, and lots of ways to keep your gambling from getting out of hand. Hey, buddy. How you doing this morning? Oh, living the dream. Understandable understandable how's the weather been up there for you uh dry and with a side of dry and about 20 inches of wind okay that sounds pretty familiar so um <laughs> what tyler why don't you tell everybody where you're at real quick and a little bit about your operation and get us going well uh i'm tyler tobel with jtech farms uh we farm uh crops and cattle up here in cloud county kansas um we're a 100% no-till operation utilizing cover crops and just just trying to improve on everything one year at a time. Okay. How long have you, – you've got quite a history with cover crops, correct? Yep. How long? Uh, we've been uh, – this year will make uh, 11 years total that we've been utilizing cover crops consistently. Okay. Now, tell me a little bit about you. Are you from there in Cloud County? Uh, uh, not really. I was uh, born in Fort Bragg, North Carolina. Uh, Mom was in the Army back in the day. And a uh, very long story. Uh, Mom ended up meeting my dad now in a uh, dating magazine. And they got together. And uh, we moved all the way out here in the middle of nowhere, Kansas. <laughs> So your dad's from there in Cloud County and your mom's from North Carolina and they met in a dating magazine. Dating magazine. Yeah, it's uh, like a, 
a boomer version of match i guess <laughs> okay snail mail version of match.com got it <laughs> yep yeah the moved out here when i was about five or no i guess four and then uh then then after that raised up all around here ever since then you ever been back to north carolina no i haven't i haven't it's it's on the bucket list actually okay. no one once to visit my great uncle frank but that was only for like a day or two they got a lot of trees there i've heard that <laughs> <laughs> it rains there every once in a while too it's kind of nice you know, i i don't know what that feels like <laughs> <laughs> yeah yeah so you grew up there in cloud county uh grew up on the farm what what's your story well uh growing up uh I was quite the gifted musician back in the day. Like, actually, you can, and on one side here, you can see the piano. On the other side, you can actually see my cello case. But uh, um, I grew up playing all sorts of instruments. Um, Looked like my career path, my future forward is going to be the music world. And went to Kansas State University, looking into going into the music world, thinking maybe performance professor something like that and ended up graduating with a bachelor's of arts in bassoon performance of all things i'm not even sure i've ever actually heard a bassoon play <laughs> i had a video uh the la- the very last time that i played my bassoon before i had to sell it uh the i I'll, it came across my time hop the other day i'm gonna have to find it and uh uh put that up on tiktok because that was the last time i played played it before i said goodbye to it i, I uh had some uh medical issues crop up towards the end of my uh college time which ended up delaying my uh graduation by a semester and i burned out hard like i almost just straight up just left parents were like you are this close to the finish line just get over it get home and then get healed up and then we can figure out what the next step is. So the nothing puts the fear of God into your conductor the most when you walk up to him with a bloodied reed and you start hacking up blood in the middle of a concert saying, Hey, we're going to need to move this second half long. I need to go to the hospital. Okay. (laughs) Sounds like some, some sort of respiratory issue. That's not very much fun. No, no, not really. Still bothers me to this day. Okay. Okay. So how, how do we go from a degree in bassoon performance to cover crops and cows? That it was me trying to figure out what was next for myself. I, I had no idea where to go next. Like that was my whole life. So the plan was go to college and, and and play music. Yep. And I didn't know what to do next because I healed up and slowly got back into it again and started playing with different groups again, started getting my chops back up. And then it happened again, middle of a concert, hacking up as hard as I could. I couldn't hardly finish the concert. It hurt so bad. And at that point, my whole world crashed. Everything that I thought I was, you know, the whole feature that I had planned just crashed on my head. And parents were like, okay, you need to figure out what you want to do next. Um, you need to just stay here, help on the farm, 
you know, try to figure out what you want to do next. Do you want to go into the repair side of things? What you want to do? And in those four and a half months that I spent healing up and working around the farm, I had more fun, worked harder, and learned more about myself in four and a half months than I had in four and a half years at college. And my dad had pretty much just given up on me coming back to the farm. I had said at one point, I actually told him, I said, don't leave the farm ground to me. I'll sell it. I was, because growing up, the a lot of our teachers, counselors, everybody told us that there was no future back here. And I we grew were up in saying, rural Kansas, too. Yeah. And they're like, go get your four-year degree or you're a failure. Well, I finally learned that that wasn't the case. And I walked in one day. I was like, Dad, what would you say if I wanted to stay home and farm with you? And he almost fell out of his chair. And then began a very painful uh, uh, learning process. I ordered some books, started learning. Dad gave me the opportunity to uh, rent one of his pieces of ground just to kind of figure out what I was doing. And slowly but surely, I went from being the dumbest guy in the room to halfway knowing what I'm talking about. And along the way... Uh, stumbled in the cover crops. My uncle was big into those, but never could figure out how to really utilize them well. He was kind of hit and miss with them. And then for the most part, gave up on them as a dead end. And I didn't see it quite that way. So we kept pushing, kept changing. And these all these years later, now we've we finally found where they fit in. We've changed our whole operation to go around them. Okay. Just, just so I kind of understand things. When were you transitioning out of college and like how much time was in there before you started doing cover crops? I guess is what I want to know. Oh, um, let's see. That would have been, been two years. Uh, it would have been very, yeah, well, year ish, I guess, year to two. My uncle was already starting to work with him a little bit before I graduated college. And my f first thought on them was they're weeds. They're going to use all your moisture. <laughs> what thing I hear a lot nowadays. <laughs> Understandable considering where you went to college. Yeah. Yeah. And then, then. I think it would have been two years after I came back. I got, uh, I talked dad into putting a whole quarter section of cover crop in by basically bribing him saying, Hey, I will pay to put it in. I will find the seed. I will, even if I have to buy every single individual seed myself and mix it all up, which I pretty well did. And I will pay to put it out. If you like it, pay me back. If you don't, you don't have to have this discussion. And it was a gamble, and it 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 paid off big. We he absolutely loved it. And then the following Milo crop behind it that next year was the best Milo he's ever raised, and he's been farming since 1971. Wow, wow! Um, you mentioned some books earlier that you started reading books. Do you remember what any of them were? Some of them were just your basic college textbooks that I got for some friends of mine that were in school for ag that they had left over that they couldn't get bought back because they went to a new edition. So the those three words in the new edition obviously meant the old one was useless now. 
Yeah, yeah. We we changed the title of a chapter so you could buy a new book for five hundred and fifty dollars. Thank you. Yep, exactly. Okay. So that first year cover crops, you started with you said a quarter. Mm-hmm. And that and that went well? Yeah, it went really, really well. Uh we didn't section it off or do anything with that. We just took the whole dang herd of cows, threw them out there, and we grazed it down into almost down into the dirt. We it was overgrazed that year, but Dad noticed that the cows were happier, they were healthier, they were barely touching some of the mineral. They were just, and they weren't drinking a whole lot of water. He the, he brought hay bales in; they were barely touching them. Like that was like this. I, I see where you're coming from. This is weird. Cows aren't supposed to do this. This is this yeah. is wrong. Yeah, cows are happy grazing in December. That that's weird. <laughs> so, yeah, I, uh, oh, go ahead. Uh, after that, we tried we tried figuring out some different ways to make it work. And of course, at this point, I'm you know I'm all in on it. You know I'm all you know save the soil, save the environment. I'm, I'm, I'm thinking just purely from that side of things. Whereas dad's thinking, how can I pay for these things? You know, that's just another expense. And then I come up with some sort of like lavish blend that was going to cost like 50 bucks an acre, just in seed. And dad looked at me and he goes, you're insane. There's no way to make that pay with that cost. And I argued with them quite feverishly too. I'm like, you saw that it worked. Why won't you get in on this? And he's like, because it doesn't matter if you save the world, if you can't pay for it. And I'm like, because if it bankrupts you in the process, you're not saving anything. He has a point. Oh yeah. It was a hundred percent valid. It felt like somebody hit me in the head with a book at that point. Cause I'm like, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. So I went back, reworked it and came back to him with an option that stated about 24, almost $25 an acre in seed. And he's like, that's better. <laughs> <laughs> now with inflation, we try to stay under 30. I mean, it seems like what was 30 bucks five years ago is about worth 35 cents today. That's no joke. We went, I don't know what it is. Like we put fuel on our, put fuel on our car yesterday. I got a new, uh, like little diesel crossover SUV, little BMW mm-hmm. used like, it, it's it's fancy, but it's it's been well loved. Thirty five <laughs> miles the gallon. Nice. So, I mean, it's not bad. I'm sitting there filling up a diesel at like four dollars and forty nine cents a gallon, and thinking, wasn't this just like two bucks a couple of years ago? <laughs> yeah, it's every time I pull up to the diesel uh, diesel pumps, I hear my wallet screaming. It's just I. With filling up the semis and everything, I'm just, I, I don't even look at the thing anymore. I just put the thing in, hit go, and then I'll worry about it later. <laughs> it's just money. It's just money. We'll just make more of it, right? Yeah, we'll just print more. It's fine. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But, so, you know, I, I watch the cost of diesel and I watch it rise. How, how are you planning on dealing with it? fuel price increases in the near future. Like if diesel goes to six or seven, eight bucks a gallon, how does that affect you? Uh, I've got a couple of different plans. If it gets to the point where we can't run a, 
uh, I've I've seen a couple of different people move from cash crop strictly to cover crops and cattle. There's a guy down by Asaria that that does that exclusively now. He he just gave up on his cash crop operation and moved everything into cover crops and cattle. And he also has, I believe, sheep's and chickens that he follows them with too. I, I can't quite remember. It's been a minute since I watched his lecture, but um, that is that is the break glass in case of emergency plan where all I have to worry about diesel with at that point is just enough to run the plant and tractor. And at that point we can, we'll start section grazing everything. Or we'll just be grazing everything year long with the exception of maybe just a little bit while we're calving. Okay. That's, that's not the optimal plan. That's uh, I, I've got a kind of a soft spot in my, in my heart for, you know, the cash crop side of things. I'm hoping eventually that uh, good old Uncle Sam will get out of the way and make industrial hemp a little easier to work with, but I'm not holding my breath. What did you mean when you said uh, section grazing? Can you maybe paint that just paint, uh, paint a picture in my head? Uh, take all the fields, uh, break them up in the different paddocks, uh, like a quarter section. I'd probably break it up in four, uh, into a, just basically a giant pie, put the tanks in the middle and then just work one section and just slowly move them around a little at a time. Okay. Bas paddock grazing. I, I, it's, I, I started calling it section grazing and I don't know quite where I, that came from. It just, I just wanted to hear what, how you defined it. So everybody else could kind of get get an idea of, you know, more specifically what you're doing. Cause th there's so many different terms for so many of the same things. There yeah. might be, you know, 80, 90% overlap, but you know, maybe you're doing something a little bit different than I'm doing it. And we're both calling it the same thing, but yeah. Um, I didn't, I didn't really mean to get you all messed up with the, you know, six, seven, $8 diesel question. Cause I, I don't right. have an answer either. And listening to you kind of sketch out your plan. Like everybody's got a plan until they get punched in the mouth. Yep. But at least you've got a direction to head when things start getting bad. Yeah, I, I, I like having contingencies. That's actually that's one of the reasons why I love cover crops so much. They are a they're a built-in contingency plan for us. That's uh, for like years like this year. My corn silage this year was absolutely abysmal. Made six tons of the acre. Just, there's not much in there. And I'm like, if I had to start feeding first part of October, I'd be out of feed by the end of the year. That's by the, with how many cows and calves and stuff to keep, keep feeding on that. That's not tenable. It's, I mean, then we're, we got all of our cover crops, which is the only thing that actually grew well this year. And there's our contingency plan. They're, they're, we're going to graze our way out of this disaster of a year. Why do you think the cover crops were the only things that succeeded with lack of moisture? The, I, I give all the credit really just to the fact that it's a multi-species blend. The This year's thing, I believe it had 23, I think it was 23 species in it. And I try to pick and choose from all sorts of different things. With one fails, others usually tend to step up and fill that void. 
like this year, um, I had there was a couple things in there that absolutely uh, sane foin was one of the things I had in there this year. It it burned up. It couldn't handle it. It could not root down well enough. And there is you could you can't find any out there. But the sedan tillered out. It kind of filled in some holes. The pumpkins and cucumbers and zucchinis and squash, all that stuff, vined out into some of the gaps. And all of a sudden, it and it was barely hanging on. Like after that second heat dome event, it was hanging on by its fingernails and it it held on just long enough to grab that first rain i'll I'll take i'll give part of it to planning and a lot of it to luck this time okay we actually didn't have a horrible horrible year down here for rain like there's there's a section of us down here right on the oklahoma state line that's about oh maybe 40 50 miles tall it goes a little east of me and it goes west of me, but I go about another 20, 30 miles north and people start getting kind of dry and you go east and people start getting kind of dry. What, um, how, how has your cover cropping system evolved in the last 10 years? What have you, like, what have been some of your major lessons and maybe what's a go-to mix for you? Um, for us, our biggest lesson was uh, trying to navigate our crop rotation and mold it to fit around the cover crops. And around here, you see a lot of two, three, like I know one guy down the road, he does four years in a row wheat. It just drives me batty watching it, but we can't do that. If you're with, because that multi-species blend is so sensitive to so many different herbicides that we cannot put any sort of residual herbicide on our wheat, not even fall applied stuff. So that's that was a huge, huge learning lesson one year. We we nuked oh almost 300 acres of cover crop, not realize we were thinking, okay, well, we put it on in the fall, that should be okay. No, that was not okay. And then we just we had some really hard lessons with that. Now it's one year wheat, and we only and we use wheat just so we can get to cover crop. And if we do any sort of herbicides, just like 2,4-D and dicampa, nothing residual, just anything to kind of smoke what's out there in the early spring. And so now it's evolved. It, we've evolved into a set rotation now. It's one-year wheat, goes to cover crop, when you would typically see wheat stubble summer fallowed. And then we graze the cover crop, and then I'll go to milo or corn. And then if it's corn, we usually follow that with another cover crop, like the triticale and uh, triticale and rapeseed this year. Uh, and then that goes to beans, which this then comes back to wheat. It's a, a three-year fast rotation. That way we're not hanging out in one specific crop more than we have to. And it basically allows us to graze two out of every three of our crop acres. Okay. So it looks like, you know, you come off wheat, which is cool season grass. Mm-hmm. And but you said it was a bridge crop, or or those weren't your words; those were my words. I thought when you when you said we use wheat to get to different covers, I thought okay, wheat's a bridge crop. I want to know, like, can you explain that? Oh, um, the the best fit we've found for our multi species cover crop blends, and we like this one a lot, is just right after we we plant our wheat in our uh, bean stubble. 
take it to harvest. And as soon as it's harvested, I maybe a week or two, depending on the weather, it's, I've sometimes pushed it out to the end of July, but we are usually in there pretty fast with that cover crop. And then that he, the wheat allows us to go to that warm season cover crop mix and then get some good summer growth out of that, you know, get some good heat units on it, maybe catch a few late rains and get some good growth. That way we have a whole lot of grazing. I mean, that makes sense. There's, I, I hate spraying wheat stubble. Like it is just, I, I it's just, you know, here's, $50 an acre, go spray something that's not growing anything. That's And then you do it twice, and then you're just, at that point, you're just angry. <laughs> you know, it blows my mind, the acres of wheat that got sprayed this year. And it it was it was the same. Everywhere, the, the fields are full of pigweeds, kosher, and crabgrass. Like, everywhere mm. I drove, you know, May and June, that's what I saw. And it it's really funny because I've got a friend down in Oklahoma. I've run some cattle for him and he got it. He had a couple neighbors that couldn't get their wheat sprayed in time. So he's like, okay, I'll buy it. Insurance adjusted it to like 20. So we got 20 bushel wheat. We got pigweeds. We got kosher. We got crabgrass. He sent the chopper man out there to chop it, put it in the bunk for about oh. $50 a ton. He got like 7,000 tons of, of great feed for about 13 and a half percent protein. Oh, wow. Yeah. That's... And I think, and I think about how many people went out and sprayed their wheat fields and all the dead pigweeds and kosher in wheat fields, just so they could, you know, windrow it and bale it. I, I, I don't know. Yeah, it was a, there was a lot of people that terminated wheat. There was a lot of people that let their wheat ride and then sprayed it before harvesting it. And that ended up being a, like nothing, nothing helped this year. If you sprayed it early and then tried to plant something through it, the chinch bugs were in it and they took pretty much everything in that next crop. Then if you let it ride and you sprayed it before you went through it with the combine, by the time you were most, and of course, mother nature had to rain. Like you, we sprayed it, people would spray it. And then all of a sudden it rained and it all regrew again. So they were left at, you know, 20, 30, whatever it was, an acre to spray it all. And then it all grew back and they had to slice through it anyways with the combine. Nothing's more fun than running all that garbage through a combine, trying to trying not to destroy a machine cutting 10, 15 bushel wheat. It's I've I've sat in a machine and tried to cut 20 bushel wheat through pig weeds, and it's not very much fun. No, no. It's, and it honestly, it requires more skill than cutting 60 bushel wheat because you're just sitting there just white knuckled listening to all the different sounds under your feet and behind you praying to the good Lord. You don't slug something or rip something apart or and you're crawling along at two or three mile an hour. It's about the most stressful. That was about the most stressful harvest I've ever had. Yeah, my friends haven't read me. Let me run a combine in probably close to a decade and. That's just fine with me. You know, I'm, I'm a better grain cart driver, a better truck driver than I have a combine operator. <laughs> I, uh, I, I love running the combine. It's, I, it's, I don't know, for some reason in a normal year, it's almost therapeutic for me. 
Like I can the the vi the vibrations of the rotor. Like I can feel the I can hear it in my head. I can you know that hum. I just for some reason I almost just kind of relax and just enjoy myself when I'm in there. In the grain cart, I'm just getting yelled at all the time. I'm never in the right spot. <laughs> That's the curse of the grain cart driver. Like, <laughs> yeah, I'm not afraid to run road gear. I mean, if if you want me there, I'll get her there. Things got a seatbelt for a reason. Exactly, and then but then the, it's, you're going too fast. Slow down. You're going to break something. But why aren't you here right now? <laughs> yeah, don't spill that. Even though I'm driving like a crazy person, don't spill that. Make sure you load that truck right, even though we parked it on the road, which is three feet higher than the field. Good luck seeing in it. Yep, yep. Don't don't overload me. But why did you send me to town three hundred pounds light? You know, it's <laughs> yeah. Fill it up, but don't overload it. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, we'll just send that one at one hundred and seven thousand. No big deal. Yeah, that's the what's the it, it ifta? It, they call it ifta. If the DOT, if the DOT don't see it, it's not a problem. <laughs> I mean, you know, when you're like four miles from the elevator down dirt roads, yeah, load the wagon. Just don't worry yeah. about the mule. <laughs> you got to go down five <laughs> miles of interstate or you know a good highway. Yeah, maybe kind of lighten that sucker up a little bit. Yeah. Oh yeah, that's around here. We call it farmer filled. That's yeah. That's usually if it's loaded front to back, yeah, it's farmer filled. All right. So I was going to ask you about transitioning from conventional, but it sounds like you just kind of came on board and was like, "Dad, I read some books. This is what we're doing." Yeah, that's and Dad just he never was one of those that just liked working ground. Like he went minimal till really early on where everybody was still doing recreational tilling you know it's like, oh hey i'm bored saturday night let's go disc and it's oh there's three pigweeds out there now let's go disc dad was like no no let's do like once maybe twice depending on what happened dad never really was big into ripping up ground like he hated messing with the plow you know just he he hung a lot of that stuff up early and was very minimal till like all of his fall crops. He went no till as soon as they had a planter that could do it. And the only thing he ended up tilling was wheat. And once we figured out how to not have to till for growing wheat, he was on board. It's like, that's just a lot of time wasted that I don't have to spend in a cab anymore. Fair enough. So you guys have kind of always been moving that direction. Yeah, just it slowly but surely. Dad's never one that likes to try something first. He likes to see other people kind of, he likes to let other people make the mistakes. And then then he'll slowly kind of start the adoption. So once he sees it with his own eyes, see how it works, then he's like, okay, now we can start thinking of how to make it work for us. You seem like a little more of an early adopter. I am. I I like to be on the forefront of a lot of different things. I. I, I like to push the envelope. I like to just, there's, there's no reason to be left behind and things are changing so fast nowadays that if you're not changing with them, you're going to get left behind. Yeah, that's definitely true. So one of the things that I do to try to keep myself from getting, you know, left behind is I try to go to conferences and get seminars and, you know, poke my network and just make sure that make sure that I know 
that there's nothing new that I need to, that I need to learn. And if there is something new I need to learn, I go learn it. Mm -hmm. What are some of the resources you've used over the years for education and ideas? Um, I'm kind of a nerd. I like reading a lot of like, just honestly, the no-till farmer magazine is a great place for me to start. And then after that, I usually fall down a rabbit hole. Uh, I'll read different. I've got mounds of paper and stuff saved on the tablets and stuff of different college papers discussing different trials, trying this and different trials, trying that, you know, just, you know, what different plants can do. And then uh, I like to go to a lot of things that green cover puts on. Uh, they've been really, they've been like, they're pretty much just kind of the OGs of the cover crop world. And they, they're pushing so far, so fast all the time, trying new different things. And heck, that's why I've got watermelons out in this dang cover crop is one year they had watermelons. I'm like, heck yeah, throw some of those in. We'll try it. What not? What, what, what could go wrong? And, um, so a lot, and I've gone to a couple different conferences. I, I tend to be a bit of a workaholic to the point where I sometimes don't like to leave. I'd I'd rather maybe watch it on my phone while I'm, while I'm working or watch it later, something like that. But I've been trying to be better about going to things instead of just kind of sitting in my couch or the tractor cab watching it. I get that disease too. Like I, I just don't want to leave. Like why would, why would I want to go to Denver for three days? That's Denver. Like it's why, tough. why can't you people have conferences, more conferences somewhere out in the middle of nowhere, not in the middle of town. But I guess if it was in the middle of town or out in the middle of nowhere, they wouldn't get all the big money people to show up. True that. Yeah. That's last time I was in Denver. I, I, I was like, this is not fun. I don't know why I'm here. Can I leave now? That's no, no offense to those people who live in Denver, by the way. It just, I don't like your town. I was just in Santa Fe for like five, six days. Now, don't get me wrong. Santa Fe is a nice town. I don't think I could see myself living there. I mean, there's there's some beautiful houses, some beautiful scenery. Um, And then we, uh, like on the way home yesterday or a couple days ago, we swung up through Taos. That's a weird place. Like, if you go to Taos, make sure you got enough fuel to leave because <laughs> <you might, laughs> I'm not saying it's a bad place. It's just they're a little strange out there. And I guess maybe that leads me to, well, we'll go somewhere else. Um, in the last 10, 12 years, have you guys noticed any of your neighbors changing the way they, changing the way they farm? Yeah. Uh, it's, I've, I've had quite a few people that have, they were what at first they watched skeptically, you know, at, at first they mocked, then it was skepticism. Then it was, man, they keep doing this and it seems like it's working for them to maybe I ought to give this a try with something, you know? And then it, then and they finally kind of turned into every now and then I get a random text message from a neighbor and it's like, Hey, I'm kind of thinking of trying some cover crops. What should I kind of, you know, can you give me a basic idea of what I'm looking, looking at doing? And I've got a, a neighbor that's a grain farmer, just no cows, nothing. And he's really bullish on getting into cover crop, but he doesn't know he's having a hard time making it pencil out for him, which I'm like, yeah, the, the cattle is what makes it pencil out for us. So last year we worked out a little deal. I did some graze rental, 
and I mob grazed it. I just put the whole dang herd out. I told him we put the whole herd out there. We will take it. We will, we will take her down to about a third left of what's out there and I'll get them off and they won't come back. And that helped him. The, he said after that, says between that and then the benefit that he got to his corn crop this year is like, I, I'm looking to get a lot more into this now. Okay. You've brought up a couple things. You said, okay, cattle are what make the whole cover crops thing pencil. And earlier you also made a comment about overgrazed some cover crops. I, don't, I might not have captured that correctly, but I, I think you said you might've left them in there a little bit too long. Yeah. The and first time we took it almost to the dirt. I'm, I mean, I might challenge that if you're, if you're like in a cover crop type system where you're going to be replanting that, those plants are going to be less sensitive and that soil, maybe I shouldn't say that, but the plants are going to be less sensitive to overgrazing in, in my mind, you know, we don't to want to overgraze our native range because that's going to reduce the overall plant health and shrink the root mass and, and hurt recovery time. But if we're talking about overgrazing a plant, that's just there to do a function and it's not going to regrow, we're not going to have that plant there you know, we're not going to be counting on that plant next year. I, it's more difficult for me to see that overgrazing is a problem. It's it, when I see like a field of planted annuals that there's still half of it there. I think of that as more, you know, they not necessarily as waste, but why didn't they graze this a little bit harder and take it down a little bit harder? So I'm interested to hear what you have to say about overgrazing cover crops and planted annuals. Oh yeah. Uh, it's, I, I've the, the conventional and the conventional thought is you've paid for it all, go get it all. And there's, but around here, if re, I, I always like to say residue is King. And if I take it all off and if I strip all that off and I eat, you know, just, they graze it down to the dirt. It, it, it hurt. It makes it so it doesn't really want to grow back as quite as fast. And I've taken a lot of my residue away with it. So now I'm losing, I've got exposed soil. I've got more stuff that's susceptible to blowing and I'm not keeping that ground covered as well as I'd like. And I'm not leaving some residue to maybe catch some snow and, and stuff like that. I, I, we, some people like to do, they call it take half, leave half. Um, and there's there's some different research on that. I think Dale Strickler did a whole big thing about that. Um, I I do I like to subscribe to the take two thirds, leave a third, um, because they found when you took half, that other half bounced back a little faster than than if you were to take two thirds. And but I still lean more towards what you were talking about, where I want to get some more out of it. There's more there that can be grazed. But I still do want to leave a little bit of that, cover that soil up, leave a little residue there, kind of trap in that moisture, act as that nice layer of mulch for me. And that's, since we've done that, that's really, really helped keep just with general with soil health and crop yields. I mean, just everything all across the board. Uh, you, you've said something I think is kind of important or kind of understated about the ability of the residue to catch snow. Mm -hmm. you know, those little, those 
little snowstorms, those little snow blows, those little ice storms that we get throughout the winter. You know, I, I you're a little farther north. I think you get a few more of them than I do. <laughs> I, I think that those little moisture events in the winter are really, really underappreciated, especially by a lot of farmers, because there's no residue in most people's fields, and that snow ends up in the ditch or ends up in the neighbor's pasture and the neighbor's CRP, and they're missing out on on moisture. I mean. A half inch of snow in to me is great moisture because that also helps, you know, the snow helps put some more nitrogen back in the soil. It's like a time release rain. It just, it helps it. It gives it so much more time um, to infiltrate. And I think people kind of miss that. I can't tell you how many times over the last 10 years, driving back and forth to town, I'll see a wheat field, you know, that's basically fowler got, you know, two inch tall wheat on it. There'll be nothing out in the field, be blowing dirt, and there'll be dirty snow in the ditch. Mm. Two miles later, you get to somebody's pasture or CRP that's got, you know, two or three foot tall grass. There's the ditch is empty. It's like, huh, what's Wonder going what on here? Must be some magic. <laughs> now that's, we, there's a lot of things, and that also goes back to some of the things that I put in our cover crop blend to there's some things that i don't want the cows to really want to eat not i don't want to put a lot of them in there because like i said grazing is where we get a lot of a return on this but there are a few things that i want to keep in there that the cows don't really want to eat a lot like uh sun hemp is a absolutely fabulous uh warm season legume uh, grown in India, we, we actually can't even reproduce it here in the States just because it's such a long season plant. And But it loves the heat. You give it just a dab of moisture, that stuff takes off. It's, the stuff we've got out there is almost six feet tall. And in a, in a good year, the, the tallest we had, it, our tallest plant was 14 foot tall. And yeah, it was insane. And they make these gorgeous flowers and stuff on them. And, but the, and they leave a lot of nitrogen behind. But the stems are completely unpalatable. The cows don't bother them. And they may break some of them over a little bit. They may take that top half and knock it over or whatever. But that stem is still there. There's a lot of those little stems scattered all over the field. The African cabbage, they will take the leaves off. Again, the stem is pretty well unpalatable once it's froze. So you have that as well. And then there's also some of the sedan and Milo. Sometimes they'll take the stock. Sometimes they just take the leaf. It's kind of a hit or miss depending on its growth on it. But And then the sunflowers, they pop the heads off. They'll eat the seeds and stuff like that. But again, the stock, unpalatable. They leave it be. So we have, all, we have a lot of different things that we leave behind that we're hoping to try to catch as much snow as we can with. Good stuff. Good stuff. Have you done any, do you have any numbers about the fertility value of grazing the cattle on cover crops as far as what they return back to the soil in NPK? I, I, I don't have any good numbers on that one. It, I, I, I need to, I, my, uh, the couple years I did it, they were such varying numbers that nothing made sense and I couldn't quite figure it out what was going I, I, on. I think to be fair, I think this is something that probably not very, that almost nobody has an idea on. I, th I think there, there's some numbers that are kind of maybe some are going to get us in the ballpark, 
And the reason I'm saying that is, it's like, it's really difficult in a pasture type setting to, to analyze the manure and the urine kind of separately and see what effects that they're going to have going into the soil. Most of the studies that I found were from confinement type operations on a ration and they were breaking down, you know, roughly what the NPK value was in the manure and in the urine return to the soil. My argument is that's anaerobic decomposition, which is going to be different. You know, mm -hmm. the manure and the urine together in a liquid state is a different decomposition process than a manure pad on the soil over here and urine on the ground over here. So I, maybe it's just kind of an overall challenge, but it's undeniable the fertility benefits that the cattle bring back to the soil while grazing a cover crop that benefits the next cash crop. Do, can you speak mm -hmm. to that a little bit? Yeah. Um, gen uh, now that we've been running for so many years in this cycle, we are now rolling over a bunch of organic nitrogen year after year after year. That's We finally got stuff where it's in this cycle of breaking down this, this constant state of keeping those soil microbes fed, keeping that ground really working. And we're now rolling over anywhere between, depending on the ground, it's anywhere between 30 and 50 pounds a year just in organic nitrogen. And that has helped us substantially reduce. We've, we've reduced our uh, nitrogen application quite a bit with um, on our Milo. We've dropped it probably about 40 pounds. Um, we're down into that'll do 70, 80. I'll maybe creep at 85, 90, but we were over well over a hundred for that. And then we haven't put on any, uh, we don't put on any K we'd, we, we haven't had to really mess with any magnesium or potassium or anything like that. The One of the nice things we've noticed is that our numbers actually went up once we started using the cover crops because those big tap roots, they went way deep. Like uh, they scavenged and pulled everything back up to the surface. So then it broke down and went back down into the surface area and our numbers have started climbing back up again. And for our available FOSS going into the next year, that one is that one that is a lot harder of a target to nail down because FOSS doesn't FOSS is a real tricky thing. It it's, it likes to tie up so easy. And with our pH issues, we it's just a mess trying to get a good it's almost like trying to trying to throw a dart onto a dartboard in the middle of a tornado. It just it's a it's a tough chore. But on average, I would say we have about another 10 pounds of FOSS available to the next year's crop. And we've actually, and when we first started out with cover crops, we were putting on some nitrogen just to help them get established and get going. We don't do that anymore. It's, there's enough left there in the ground that we're rolling over that it just makes use of it. It takes off and, and then it usually puts back what it takes between them and the cattle. Are you backing that up with soil sampling? Not, not yet. That's, I, I've been trying to uh, i i did my first real grid sampling and stuff last year the, a lot of it some was just you know I, i'll wander out here and take a stab and well, we'll see what we got here and i'll wander out over here and take a stab and it's not good enough data that i'd feel comfortable making a huge spreadsheet about it it's more of a this is kind of what i'm seeing a, a, a general overview rather than specific numbers for specific fields 
I, I think there's a lot of value in those anecdotal observations rather than, you know, it, some of they need sometime. Eventually you got to back that up with hard science, with hard numbers. Yep. But when you hear, when you hear dozens of people all saying the same thing, like we're having these observations, this is what we're seeing. This is what we're seeing work. And this is how we're, how we think it's working. When you have a dozen people all telling you the same thing, it's, it'd be kind of hard to say, well, in order to prove that you need to go spend another 50 bucks an acre or grid soil sample it. Just so you know, yeah. like, well, I can see what's happening with my own eyes. I can do my own measurements. And I, this is, this is what I'm seeing. Yeah. Think, that's I'm reducing, I'm reducing my inputs. You know, that, you know, I, I tell people they're in, there's my proof right there. I've cut my input in my cut my inputs by at least a third. And I'm still getting the same, you know, I, I don't so much shoot for the top end yield goal anymore. That's, I think that's a fool's errand around here, but I, I, I shoot for profit, not for bragging rights at the next cafe, but it's, but I'm, my yields are still right in line with pretty much everybody else's. And your input costs are lower. You probably work less hours and have a better quality of life. Yep. Yep. Get to spend some time with the family and it's all in all, it's been a, it's been a win uh, just straight across the board. It, it, it's been challenging. I won't, I won't lie there. It's, it's not as simple as following the directions on the back of a jug. It is, it has taken a lot of work and a lot of, Ooh, that was a mistake to go. There we go. I think we finally dialed ourselves in. I think you said a you couple, couple important things there. You can't buy soil health in a jug. They don't sell it at the farm store and it's not, it's not prescriptive. And I think that's why it's got a fairly slow uptake rate. Yeah, that's, it's, it's so, it's so varying for different, like what works for me right here in North central Kansas does not work at all. Another 20, 30 miles up, you know, that's people are like, yeah, we tried that. We don't know what happened. Like two thirds of this stuff just, like the bugs got in it and it, they just ate it down to the ground. I'm like, bugs? Like we have some bugs here, but like, and they start talking about some different mold issues. And I'm like, I, I'm sorry, I don't understand that. What what what's mold? You have to have moisture to have mold, and we don't have that. So it's it, every operation's use of cover crops has to be specifically tailored to their goals, their operation. And it requires a lot of work. And some people are willing to take on that that task. And some people are like, that's that's just too much work. I don't really want to dive into that. I think people are looking for a magic bullet or a magic solution or a prescriptive system that's written down in a binder that they can just pull out and say, oh, this is what I'm supposed to be doing today. And when you start doing cover crops, you might have to adjust your blend every year. You might have to adjust yep. your blend based on when weather conditions allow you to get into the field. So you plant the right mix of, you put the right mix of plants out there to help bridge you to the next cash crop mm -hmm. or, or the right mix that's going to grow in that environment to give you enough forage for cows. Yeah. You, you have to be able to, and also you have to worry about what's available to you as well. The, with supply chain issues that have been just 
absolutely brutal on the cover crop world as well. And in drought issues, some years you have things that just aren't available. So now you're now you're going, okay, well, like uh two years ago, no beardless triticale at all. I couldn't even get rye. I was like, what the heck happened? They're like, yeah, they we don't have hardly anything from our suppliers. So uh, they're like, we do have some oats though. So now I start looking, okay, what kind of oats can I use that are going to get me over winter, which that uh, those are options are very few. And I was like, oh, Cossack black oats will overwinter. And they have a bet. They've been shown to have a bit of allopathic properties, kind of like rye and triticale. Awesome. So I, after like two hours of reading, I'm like, okay, adjusted full scent. It's you, you got to be able to adapt and adjust. And I, I basically, with the exception of our hard, fast crop rotation for the moment, which if something changes in the future and we have to change it, I'm fine with changing it. I'm willing to adapt. That's not a big deal. But right now, the only thing that's hard and fast for us is that is our crop rotation. That's what we're sticking to. No question. That's no matter what happens. That's what we're sticking to. That's our one constant. But everything else, let's adapt around that. Okay. It, you know, we've been calling it adaptive grazing or adaptive rotational management, adaptive multi paddock grazing, holistic adaptive management. The moral of the story for me is: your management practices should not be rigid and inflexible. Because Correct. the world is not rigid and inflexible. Things change all the time. So we mm -hmm. need to be adaptable to deal with the change as it comes. So being adaptable for the future. <laughs> <There's>, <laughs> we've got a few problems in ag, don't we? I mean. Couple. <laughs> Couple. And, you know, for clarity, for those of you out there in a pod, in podcast land tyler's got a great tiktok channel jtac farms it'll be linked in the description show notes um and he's been having some conversations about the future of ag and i share a lot of your concerns so where would you like to start well let's go ahead and just start with the first one that i started with in that series we'll just start with land and land prices okay right now it's and I was talking to a, another kid. It's he was. I can say kid now because I'm in my 30s and he's younger than me. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, I was talking about. I've been looking to try to expand my operation, and the price of ground here has just gotten silly. Now, if you compare the price of ground around here to something up in you know the 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 I states, it's still the, it just compared like, to the I states. They're like that's cheap, and I'm like, well. Not when I grow, you know, a third of what you guys normally grow in a year, but around here, the the prices for it just don't pencil out. I there was a quarter that they were uh, they were asking fifty. Basically, it's like fifty one fifty an acre, and I'm like, that's that's a spicy meatball. I start running the numbers on that and look at, and I know the guy who farmed it and I know the, the general yields that he's had over there. And I also know it's been worked for years and years and years. And so I know I'm starting essentially at zero 
where I'm where I want to with like cover crops and you know rolling over my stuff and everything else. And the numbers I came back with were like, I am not going. I have to have awesome years for the next thirty years, just for that ground to cash flow itself, not make a profit, just kind of you know pay the taxes, pay everything else, and then I'll start making my first profit profit you know at 65 I'm like that sounds horrible and now i get it the nowadays you're not so much buying ground for yourself as you are for the next generation there's a guy that brought that up in the comments i'm like that is a fair point but the problem is i still have to pay for it i'm not in a great position right now to be able to drag that anvil behind me because if it tanks one, it tanks a couple of years, that means I'm going to have to rob profit from someplace else on the farm, which if that tanked, I'm guessing something, the whole rest of the farm isn't going to be doing is great either. So now I'm taking a bad year, robbing everything. And I'm robbing Peter to pay Paul. And I'm both Peter and Paul in this scenario. And it's just not, it, it could, it could be disastrous. I, I don't know what the solution to that is. I it, it bothers me because five years ago, seven years ago, even I passed on some ground and I'm kick. I kick myself for it every time I drive by that field. I could have had it for you know twenty seven hundred an acre, twenty three hundred an acre, and at the time I was like, that's way too much. Now I'm just like, you idiot! You should have just bought all of that because. It cash flowed, even with you know nine dollars, even with ten dollar, nine dollar beans, whatever they got down to, you know, it still cash flowed okay. It wasn't you weren't getting rich off of it, but it was doing all right. Now we're now we're in a, a spot where the rest of your farm is now paying for that next field. That's not something I particularly like. Yeah, it, it yeah, doesn't it, make a lot of sense to me either. And it, the comment you made that there's guys that are buying ground for the next generation. And I, I was kind of sitting here trying to roll over how that works. And, you know, I, I'm sure there's vehicles and, and legal mechanisms that, you know, so the gener the current generation could spend money and pass that asset to the next generation without tax consequences. But I just, I think about the tax consequences and, you know, it, it seems like every six months, there's some kind of difference with the inheritance tax. It's like my dad tells me, I hear from him every once in a while because he's like 80. He's like, yeah, I should have died four years ago before they changed this rule, blah, 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 blah. I'm like, well, you know, A, I'm glad you're here, grump ass. <laughs> like, stick around for a while because I still need you for advice. And B, um, you never know, like they could change it next year and it could be a whole lot better for somebody in our position. So it happens when it happens and you just kind of have to deal with the situation. But I know that I'm going to have to come up with a pile of money to pay taxes and he's yeah. doing the best he can. So sometimes I kind of question, like I might question that, like somebody saying, Oh, I'm buying this for the next generation or, Maybe that's just, I, I don't know what I'm saying, but 
land price and availability, you know, it's a huge problem. We're not just losing, um, you know, it's, it's not just the land price that's out of control. It's, there's a lot of areas that have, you know, urban rural interfaces. You know, guys are selling off 40 acres right by town for, so they can grow houses there or grow ranchettes and have horse farms. It's more land being taken out of production, which puts upward price pressure way out here in the rural areas. You know, $2,500 an acre just seems like an absurd amount of money in Kansas to pay for any piece of dirt to me. I mean, ir irrigation doesn't have a lot of value to me, like center pivot irrigation. Okay, yeah, if it works, that's great, but that's still also repair bills down the line. It's also upkeep and overhead cost. Mm-hmm. There's, I got to tell you this, I, I, I think I've said this on the show before, so I'll, I'm going to get this wrong of when it was, but it's been within the last year. There's a property that traded, and it was like 1,100 acres, and it's covered with cedar trees, has not had fire in there since probably the 60s. Oh, no. Does not really have fence around it hasn't had cattle in it in at least 10 years, but it's got a couple food plots and it's got a couple of deer blinds on it. If I rolled my eyes any harder, they'd pop out of my head. <laughs> I, that's, don't get me wrong. I love hunting deer as much as the next, you know, country guy, but. But when those oh, deer hunters come in and pay almost $3,000 an acre for quote grass like that, that's not screwing over the farmer next door. That's screwing me over raising my property taxes. Mm -hmm. And it's not like, I don't know. I don't know if the cloud County government's as greedy as Barber County government, but it seems like my property taxes have gone up about 40% in five years. Ours, ours likes to play games. They're like, Oh, we lowered your mill levy. And then they raised all the evaluations. I'm like, Oh, that's cute. That's you guys, you know, like uh, distract over here while they, you know, go over here. And it's, it, I'm like, you guys are still taking more. It, don't just, just say, just own it. Just say, Hey, we're, we need more money. We're taking all your money. And just, just, just quit, quit trying to be coy about it. Just own it. Yep. Yep. And, you know, the land price thing isn't getting better. And, the direction I see us going, and it's scary as hell, is becoming more of a nation of tenant farmers and ranchers. Like mm -hmm. somehow we were all distracted over the last 20 years. And most people in ag got turned into got turned into tenants. And we we're all asleep. Nobody saw it. Now here we are in 2023, and people are starting to realize that. And it's like, oh crap, what's the next generation of food producers look like? Where are they going to come from? Uh, we we had a farmer in our area that he was a he he rented a whole bunch of uh, he rented almost I think he was at ninety percent of his operation was rented ground, and out of that ninety percent, almost all of it was by one family, and the 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 people that he rented it from for years and years and years they got along together they drank beer together they hunted together the next generation did not like him at all, so when the old generation passed. They took that ground and they yanked it, lock, stock, and barrel. Overnight, he was essentially bankrupt because he had 
all of these expensive tractors and combines that were on lease that now he had 10% of the ground he did have. And all of a sudden he was scrambling, trying to get, I mean, he was, I mean, yeah, he had some cash to save up, you know, some reserves saved up, but it took him hard. And then a bunch of that ground sold. He was able to buy some of it back, but now he's, you know, he's almost a senior citizen now with, with land notes that had take him well over a hundred years old before they're paid off trying to, you know, he's still making it work, but he's like, that was not what I had had in mind. He's like, I, I thought we were good. And that's, that's the scariest thing about me for renting. Like I, I, I don't mind renting the occasional piece, but man, when you're having to do everything for someone else and you're not able to make your own decisions, really, you got to make it, you got to go ask, you know, especially if you're doing, you know, doing shares, like I don't want to share with anyone. I'll, I'll pay you cash for it and you let me do my thing and maybe we can have a few other stipulations on it, but just, I'll get, I hand you, presidential flashcards and you let me farm the way I want to. And because you're not going to get some guy who's living in Indianapolis and, you know, working in a corner office to, you know, to be like, Hey, I want to plant this cover crop over here. Can you pay your landowner share your landowner share of that? He's going to look at you and go, what good am I getting out of that? What's well, I'm helping. Yeah, exactly. No, well, I'm I'm helping the soil health. That's what fertilizers for. Like I've heard these conversations before, and they're just I I I am. That's one thing I'm absolutely terrified about. And I'm also seeing a weird trend just kind of started around here. I a patch of ground that got sold that got bought by an investment group that was held for about a year and a half, and now they're flipping it for a little more to another investment group. That was that had sold their patch to a different investment group that they flipped. Almost give it's given me subprime like warnings and stuff. I, I don't know. I don't see a crash ever really happening like they do with the subprime stuff. But it's almost like they're building it up like they were doing. Then you know, inflating you know how good this investment is, and you're like, well, we you know this investment's amazing. You know, they're not making any more of it, and then they flip it to the next person and, you know, new paint, new shrubs, flip it to the next person and just inflate the price of everything. Kind of like the deer hunters have been doing with some of these little hunting properties around me for the last few years is they'll come in and buy it, move the feeders around and leave their cameras up. Mm -hmm. No kidding. There's a guy. He's probably got less than 2,500 acres between lease and what he owns kind of scattered around the county his corn bill at the co-op for feeding deer oh no was six figures um i'm sorry i i think i might be having a stroke do you smell toast <laughs> I smell toast that's that's insane it yes yes it's just it's insane it's totally insane and you know, we're told by our, you know, some of our local officials, oh, the hunting's good for our community. It's good for tourism. It's good for our community. And they'll point out 
well, you know, this guy spent over a hundred thousand dollars at the co-op on corn to feed deer. Like, hold up. Okay. That's all right for the co-op. That's okay for the corn yeah. farmers. Pretty much everybody else that's outside of town, that's not great for because it's driving up our, you know, it's driving up our land prices. We're getting all these, we're getting a lot of people out here. Like, I don't have a problem with tourists. I don't have a problem with deer hunters. Pick up your damn deer corn bags out of the ditch. Please take those things with you. I don't want to see them. We get tired of them. You know, there's one guy around here that like, you know, a little pickup bed trailer. You know what I'm talking mm-hmm. about? Yep. He's got one of those that he pulls behind a little SUV. That's when he goes to town and gets corn in. And you can mm-hmm. always tell when he's around because there will be a trail of corn back and forth from the co-op to wherever he went to dump it out in the field. Yep. And this is a guy that doesn't even put it in the feeder, right? He just drives out there and shovels a bunch of it out the back onto the ground and drives off. Yeah, I've got, there's a couple of guys that will, they'll show up in their pickup and they'll be like, hey man, uh, if I, you know, did you fill up my, tr- my truck bed? I'm like, I'm like, do you see how high up that auger is? Like, I don't even know if I can hit your truck bed. It's, <laughs> it's, uh, like, do you see how big that auger is too? I said, looking at those bald tires you got back there, I'll probably blow out and break your axle doing it. And he's, oh no, no, no it'll be fine. I'm like, nah, try the next one down the road. That's. I'd, I, I did that once and and idled it, missed half of it, got a bunch on the ground. He's like, "Well, I ain't paying for that stuff on the ground." That's uh, you you missed. I'm like, "Okay, cool. I guess the cows will eat it." But I I don't understand that. That's I, I don't understand where they're coming from on the tourism side. I'm like, "You're for deer season. You've got like." you know you've got your guys and they're not out going to local museums taking in you know you know shows at the local theater or whatever like that they're not doing they're staying in their cabin you know they may go get some food but maybe go get some beer but i i i've always pushed back on that oh it's tourism like no it's not really tourism i mean they're just they're there for like a weekend and they're gone they're they're usually just in their cabin and then they go out and spend all day in the sand and the point that i would make is is okay yeah does that guy coming in for three or four weekends a year does he bring in more money to the community than a rancher running that ground and running livestock on that ground properly managing it and having a sellable product in the community like you're gonna tell me that's less of an economic benefit that rancher creating a job for himself, maybe a part-timer or demand for some more day thug help mm-hmm. while he's producing a protein product that can be processed and sold locally. Like you're going to tell me that that Florida deer hunter is a better tenant of that land. Yeah. I I've, I've had that argument quite a few times and they usually do some sort of straw man argument. Well, I mean, Look at you know Joe Bob over there. He doesn't manage his stuff very well, and they they go they find the worst example that they can off pass possibly find, which there are you know a number of them. And they're like, well, if they don't manage their ground well. Why you know you know why are you you know he, he he's not managing it any worse than they are. I'm like, just because two people are bad at something doesn't mean that the other ones 
you know, the model that we should follow here. It's they're both bad at it. Let's look at someone who's actually, like you were saying, properly caretaking it. And then let's run some numbers. But then again, somebody's going to walk up and challenge you on your definition of properly managed. And mm -hmm. then there, that leads to, you know, a whole other set of conversations and agreements. Yep. Uh, anyway, we'll, uh, we'll slide on down the road of future problems in agriculture. I don't think that there's an answer for land price. And I think things are going to get worse price-wise before they get better. And I think carbon is going to have a lot to do with that. Soil carbon storage, carbon sequestration, carbon sequestration mm -hmm. by, you know, no-till cover crops. Like it's, it's coming. Like it's 100% coming. And as that market starts to develop, I think it's going to get, I think land price could get really weird when mm -hmm. the carbon market starts to, starts to exert price pressure on the land market. Yep. That's I, I just start. It actually reminds me. I need to get mine. Get I. It's, I, I went with a FBN's thing that they pay for cover crops and putting wheat in your rotation and stuff like that. That's. I looked at a couple other ones and my gosh, there was one. I think it was indigo that was. I looked at the amount of paperwork that I was going to need to dig up for like the last ten years, and I'm just like, um. And I ran the. I was like, you're going to be paying me about thirty five cents an hour to work and get all this stuff dug up. I'll, I'll pass, thanks. And, but yeah, that that's that program's continuing to evolve. There's going to be a few more things. Like right now, you no one's getting rich from it, but it doesn't hurt to have a few extra. It never hurts to have a few extra dollars laying around. Yeah, I mean, if you can get another. 15 or $20 an acre of, of cash flow, that mm -hmm. makes a big difference to a lot of folks. Oh yeah, definitely. That's the, for the cover crop stuff from, for ours, we're running about $10 an acre for that. I'm like, well, heck I, that just, that cut, you know, basically I'll just apply that to my seed bill. And now instead of paying $30 an acre in seed, now I just paid $20 an acre. All of a sudden that, that number to the, that where I, you know, the amount of cows and days on that cover crop that I have to have to, you know, start getting into the black. That number got a lot smaller now. That's, that's a lot faster to start turning a profit. For sure. Okay. Labor shortages. Oh, uh, that's one that that's man. Like the, the equipment one, that one got a lot of traffic, but the one that got some serious hate on there was the labor shortages one. I'm going to sound like a boomer for a second, okay? So just kind of bear with me. No one apparently wants to work around here anymore. It's, I don't get it. I don't understand where everybody went. <laughs> like overnight, Everybody, like all the help wanted signs just became like just people basically just riveted it to their front door. It's just that permanent of the problem. I don't know what happened. I don't know where everyone went I, for just that in that instant. But I know we're having we have a serious brain drain out here. And it goes back to the comment I made earlier about when I was in school. We were basically told there is no future in small town America. I was literally told exactly that to my face. It, okay. So you made a comment earlier that, you know, you were in your thirties. I'm going to guess you're probably early thirties. 
mid uh, 35. Okay. So I'm only 10 years older than you, but yeah, like around the time that we were both going to school, like I was kind of at the beginning of it and I'm not sure what they're still telling anybody now, but I remember being told you got to go to college. Everybody's got to have a degree. If you don't have a college degree, you'll never be able to get a good job. You'll never be able to have a good quality of life. Everybody's got to have a college degree. And like, right when I was getting ready to join the Navy, they're like, they opened up college admissions for more people. And then while I was in, it's like, oh, well, let's pay for everybody to go to college because everybody should have the opportunity to go to college and money shouldn't be an issue. So we paid for everybody to go to college. First, we told everybody, you got to go to college. You got to get a degree. Mm -hmm. You'll never know anything. You'll never get a good job. And then we said, okay, now we'll pay for it. Now we have generations that have been told to look down on manual labor jobs, to look down on physical jobs and told they had to go get a college degree at a backed up with public debt. And now we have a generation of people with useless degrees without practical real world physical skills and no knowledge of how the world works, no knowledge of where food comes from, no skills other than a liberal arts degree or something in gender studies. Like I'm not throwing shade on your bassoon performance degree. Trust me. I'm not. Don't worry. I'll throw it myself. (laughs) When I was, I remember, um, one of the actual good things I remember from middle school is our middle school vocal vocal music instructor. Forget her name, short chick. She said, like she she kind of came down real hard one day on the on the quote the jocks in the class, and she said, "You guys are making fun of music. You're making fun of playing instruments. Let me tell you what." your chances of getting a college scholarship are 100 times greater if you Mm -hmm. play an instrument than if you play sports. So if you want to go to college and have somebody else pay for it, you need to learn how to play an instrument. Yep. hundred percent. I went with almost a full ride with, I had, Oh, I can't even remember now how many different scholarships that I got. And I, I basically went almost a full ride with all of my different music scholarships. And also I went after every scholarship that wasn't, you know, nailed down at, at the time. Cause it, that was something I started noticing when I was a kid. That's even worse now that nobody was actually, there's not a lot of people, there's not a lot of competition for some of these scholarships. Like I was going up against like one or two people and I'm like, okay, I'll try my odds on that. Well now like my parents have a scholarship fund and maybe they get one, two a year. And it's opened up for like multiple counties around us. I was like, no, it's only 500 bucks. I'll just take out some debt. It's fine. I don't need to go to that much work to get that scholarship for 500 bucks. If my daughter knew there was a scholarship around, it didn't matter if it was 50 bucks. She was writing for it. She was trying to get it. That's she's a smart girl. Yep. And I remember the people talking about tech school. Like I cannot, I, I could not imagine saying this to a diesel mechanic at one of these bigger truck stops, like some of these guys like down in Salina, they're, they're pulling some serious money working there. I mean, they work some hideous hours and it's not easy work, but they make some dang good money. And, you know, telling them that, you know, if you go to tech, tech schools just for losers who can't hack it at a four-year program, like 
No, no, no. Those guys are making bank. Like, there's a reason why he's driving a 2023 Denali and has a Snap-on toolbox that's worth more than your your you know all of your college debt combined, and more than your rental house. <laughs> right? Yeah, yeah. He's he's got a boat. He's going to the lake every weekend. You know, and is drinking his weight in beer and paying for it all in cash. He's those guys. Like now, I. I, I, I give a lot, a little bit of credit to this, like to the micro dirty jobs kind of movement, you know, really highlighting that these trades are important. You know, your underwater basket weaving degree is not going to fix your plumbing. You know, it's not going to keep the lights on. These are the people that make this, make the country function while you sit in your ivory, ivory tower and philosophize. Just in my anecdotal observation, like county road department, going you know to a quarry to pick up material, going to the feed mill, manual labor jobs, a lot of guys 55 to 65 years old and a few guys mm-hmm. under 30. There's nobody yep. in the middle. Nope. And that's, that's our generation, but that's our generation that was told, go to college, get a degree, get big or get out go to town, get a job because there's no future in agriculture. Yep. And we're, there's a lot of us are gone. There's, uh, I, I, uh, I gave my ratio around here to millennial gen X ish was, uh, to boomer ratio is like one in 10. Like there's not a lot of us around. Like when I'm looking at the next generation of farmers around in my area, there's like five of us where there, where right now there's like, 12 14 15 families there's not hardly anyone to take over the mantle once those are gone i mean i'm seeing a lot of there's a lot of old guys running spraying rigs now and like and and a lot of the like the co-op nutrient i don't care who it is they're screaming bloody murder trying to find anybody they're like we will train you we will pay for you to get your CDL. We will pay for you to get your commercial applicator's license. We will pay everything while still paying you pretty decent money. And people are like, I don't know, I got to be outside. I have allergies. Well, I've got dust allergies too there, Susan. Buck up. It's it's not that big of a deal. Take some, take some Zyrtec. You'll be fine. Take some Zyrtec. Put a couple blue paper towels in your pocket. Go on with your life because that's what the rest of us have to do. Yeah, exactly. You know, keep keep some mucinex for when you start getting you know hung up with a bunch of dust in your chest, and it'll be fine. I promise. <laughs> Are there days where your allergies get so bad you just quit and go home? It, they get. Uh, I've had a couple get pretty. Uh, if I'm mowing. And I'm getting through like some ditch weed and stuff like that. That will lay me out. And I mean, it'll it'll send me into a migraine spiral where the whole house is black, and I'm like just laying in, just laying under five different layers of blankets, trying not to not to cry. That's about the only thing that'll really put me on my put me on my butt. The Milo dust is the only thing that, other than that, that really gets to me after a while. It'll. At the end of mile harvest, I need a break because I'm having a hard time. I'm wheezing, I'm hacking, and you know, snot rockets are flying everywhere. <laughs> There's days I get days where my eyes just water so much, my nose runs so much that 
there's almost nothing I can do but just camp on the couch with a bucket of Kleenexes. Mm-hmm. It's twice twice a year I get a horrible sinus infection. Or not, well, they call it a sinus infection. I just call it my sinus is shifting. That's when it gets goes from warm to cool and cool to warm again. And if I don't get on it fast, I'm out for a week. It's I'm I, I, I it, it's like man flu on steroids. <laughs> My wife knows all about the man flu. <laughs> I had I had RSV last year, and I'm like, and she's like, she's like, uh, is this what the man flu is? I'm like, no, this is what dying feels like. I'm sure, I'm sure of it. That's <laughs> sure. Man flu is way milder than this. I'm actually literally dying right now. <laughs> and I'm a grumpy. I'm a grumpy, sick person. I, 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 I my wife is. She is, I don't know how she puts up with me. When I get sick, I, I don't like being inside. I don't like not doing something. I, I, like I mentioned earlier, I'm a bit of a workaholic. And so all I'm doing while sitting inside is thinking of all the work I could be doing. And I just get grumpier. Okay. Fair enough. <laughs> so what else do we need to talk about with labor issues, labor shortages? It's, I don't know. Um, I, I'm starting to see some. Uh, I'm starting to see some positive resolution on that with kids. Like I've noticed in our school that the kids are now not just going and you know talking to a couple of lawyers downtown about how they got their law degree. Um, it's now they're they're doing they're they're looking at. They're, I see them going to like um oh like the plumbers, electricians, and stuff like that, talking to the tradespeople about different things. They're actually going to the tech college. The tech college is working with the high school saying, hey, would you like to take some of some early college classes through us? So they're they're working together, trying to keep some people more local, like, hey, there is there is work here. There is a future here for you. We need people to help make our make our areas work. So that's I'm seeing some positive with that but at the moment stuff's really hurting that's uh i tried to find some part-time help for planting crops a couple years ago and what was it a year ago last two i can't remember two years ago i think and i was way behind and i put the ad out i was paying 25 dollars an acre more if you had experience or not acre 25 dollars an hour and i'm like that's that's good money to hopefully get someone. I had three people and first one ghosted me when he, and I don't know why I was like, okay, well, if you found something better, cool. Second guy wanted $500 just to talk to him. I'm like, I didn't fall off the turnip truck yesterday, but I know a scam when I hear it. Have a nice day. The third guy just wanted gas money to come out and talk to me. I'm like, fabulous. I will fill up your tank. No questions asked. That's we'll give you cash. But I'll put my nozzle on <laughs> your tank and make sure you got enough to get back to town. Exactly. And he came out and he was an older guy, which I didn't, don't really care. It's, and I said, you know, what's your experience with Grain Star and uh, Auto Steer? He's like, I don't use any of that. Um, and I'm like, okay. And I'm like, well, what's it? We use that because uh, on our air seater, we have section control and we use that to just to help with, you know, so we're not over sowing and wasting a bunch of seed and fertilizer. It was using air seeder. I'm like, yeah, that was, that was, that was in the uh, listing that, you know, I needed help running the air seeder. And he's like, no, you don't have a box drill. I'm like, no, 
no, I don't have a box drill. Well, if you want my help, you'll get a box drill. I'm like, they're running through my head. I'm thinking, yeah, I'm going to go out and buy a $70,000 piece of equipment or a $50,000 piece of equipment and go hand it off to this guy just so I can have him plant some crops for me. Well, I've got a perfectly good one that I can't use now. Yeah, that doesn't sound like, like that sound like a good operation. No. And I'm like, I know we, we don't our air seeder. We plant everything with our air seeder, with the exception of corn. And, and he's like, I don't use that crap. I'm like, well, I think we're at a bit of an impasse. And then he had a lot of a lot of blue words, and he actually left before I could fill up his tank. And I'm like, bye. Guess I'm gonna I'll sleep next week then, I guess. <laughs> Thanks for not reading my ad and wasting my time by driving out here. I appreciate that. Yeah. Yeah, I'm like, there's there's an hour of my life I'm never gonna get back. And it's I could have I could have got twenty three acres of stuff planted, you know, in that hour that I wasted. Yeah. But I was sitting here thinking, you know, the land and labor issues that we've been talking about. And I feel like the solution is the downscale. You know, it, we agree that a new farmer coming out of college, unless you got a half a million dollars sitting in the bank for capital, you're not starting a farm. You're not starting a commodity farm. Nope. On the other hand, I still think it's very possible and financially feasible or economically feasible, not financially. I think it's economically feasible for somebody to buy land with debt, a small acreage, mm -hmm. and with labor, make that acreage pay. I mean, vegetables, vegetables wait. Vegetables are a lot more profitable per square foot than wheat is, than corn or cover crops. And honestly, I don't think the world needs more corn, wheat, soybean, and cotton farmers. I, I really think we're don't. Doing, we're, doing pretty good. <laughs> we're doing pretty good on that right now. <laughs> you know, we could use more people growing peppers. We could use more people growing potatoes. We could use more people growing shit that people actually eat that doesn't need to be processed. Yeah, that's what we need. And that's what I think that the future of agriculture looks like is the big commodity farms being less owned by persons, more owned by corporations and investment firms mm -hmm. still worked by persons pretty, you know, kind of in the same sharecropper system that we have now or cash rent system we have now. But I think the days of, of large-scale commodity operations being started up on personal capital, I think those days are gone. Oh, yeah. Long gone. That's, uh, I, I, was the, I started running numbers on what it would cost to start a basic operation. And I'm thinking, you know, I'm like, okay, well, we'll start with like a, like a 9500 or an 8820 combine. You know, we're not – I wasn't even going crazy on equipment. You know, I was like, okay, you know, maybe – early 2000s Krauss sunflower drill, something like that. Something that you could do some stuff with still get some life out of it. And I start, and I start running numbers. I'm like, good Lord. Like even, you know, especially with the used market today, that's that gets into that third video about equipment and stuff. The used market today is insane. Even for garbage. They're, they're wanting a mint for that because well, there's, 
people can't afford the new stuff. So they're like, okay, well, let's look and see what we got here in the used side of things. And the used market's just getting slammed right now. Not to mention all the supply chain issues with the new stuff too. I mean, right now a new air seeder is 18 months. I got to know almost two years away if I want a new air seeder. And when do you have to put money down to start to get that? The deposit, I, I, I don't quote me, but I believe the deposit has to go down when you order it. Yeah, I think it's like 5%, 10%, something like that. Yeah, 5 10%. I'm going to put 5% <laughs> down on this piece of machinery that I know I'm not going to see for 18 months. Yeah, yeah. That's and tall. That's the the planners. I think the last I heard, the planners were around 12 to 14 months, so that's not quite as bad, but yeah. And then the air seeder side, the guy's like, if we even get the allocation. I'm like, I'm sorry, what? He goes, that's if deer will let us have one. We got an allocation. Uh, they, they got an allocate. The, one of our uh, dealers here got an allocation for one 50-foot air seeder. That's all they got. They're like, that's all you're getting from us this year. You get one 50-foot air seeder. They had it sold in like 35 seconds. It's Because there was like 10 guys like, hey, I need a new air seeder. Well, the first one that walked in the door was like, congratulations, you're getting an air seeder. Everybody else, um, here's Better the number luck. of some rebuild it. <laughs> Better luck in the lottery next year. Yeah, that's not a, that's not a, that's not something that's sustainable for the future. You cannot sustain it, an industry like that. I mean, it's, and it's getting like that for almost every, every place. The, our local electric, our electric co-op, they order a boom truck, 36 months on the boom truck. And they said, we're not guaranteeing the price on it. They paid full market price for that boom truck. And they still are probably going to have to pay the difference when they get it of what the market adjustment will be three years from now. Wow. Wow. That hurts your brain, doesn't it? Yeah, it does. It does. <laughs> hey, you want to take a little, uh, little relief break? I noticed you've been yeah. sipping some coffee. I need to go yep. recycle some. We'll be back in a minute. <laughs> yeah, good old coffee recycling break. Probably wouldn't be a ranching reboot podcast without at least one of those. <laughs> so we were talking about equipment, um, equipment and the future of ag. We just got done talking about uh, some labor issues, and you know it, it seems like. Well, I'll let you go. I'll let you go. The equipment issues is, man. Stuff's just, it, it, it's just flying high in price anymore. It's between, you know, shortages in, you know, the uh, oh supply world, getting everything to the manufacturers, to the cost of those manufacturers now that, you know, they're like, everybody's now wanting more and more money to work for them. It's like, and then they just pass it on down. They just pass it on down the line. You're not going to hurt their profit margin. They're going to get it someplace. Well, like, but the problem is, it, oh, sorry, when you go to like fast food, okay, that, that to me was the first example. People are like, well, we need $15 an hour minimum wage. seems like that was like the 2019 narrative. And then yep. in 2020, 2021, it's like, oh no, the minimum wage needs to be $25 an hour. Hold up. <laughs> like if you want $25 an hour to flip burgers, you do not understand 
what that is going to do to everything else in five years. That makes everything else that much more expensive. When you make that assembly line worker that was getting paid $8 an hour, when that guy costs you $15 an hour now, guess what? Your, mm -hmm. your, cost, your cost of production goes up, which means your cost of goods sold goes up, which means you need to charge more for it, which means the consumer pays that price. Like it, mm -hmm. that's what I think people are like. A lot of people just, just totally miss that all costs in the economy are borne by the consumer at some point. And mm -hmm. everything in our economy is made by a guy like you or me, or somebody driving a mining truck or somebody working in a metals refinery. Like, yeah. When we start adding in costs, at the basic stages of production, because the people on the consumption end can't afford shit, that's like we're eating our own tail. Yep. I, the one thing that drives me nuts is hearing the words living wage. That is the most obnoxious term for me because it's so entirely subjective. <laughs> what is a living wage? What do you need to live? Are you wanting and how are you wanting to live? Are you wanting to live like Gandhi, where you could get by with probably about 35 cents an hour? Or are you wanting to live like a Kardashian who would probably need about eight thousand dollars an hour? You know what? You know, it's and I'm and some people are so bad at their you know managing their life, you could you could they could make a billion dollars a year and still be broke. It it's what is I, I absolutely despise that term living wage, you know, every, and where are you living? That's another thing. You know, people out here like, oh, you need pay. We need paid twenty five, thirty dollars an hour out here. And I'm like, you do realize you can buy a house in one of these towns for, for like forty five, fifty thousand dollars. Right. You go to Topeka and that same house is probably one hundred and fifty, two hundred thousand. You go to Chicago, that house is probably six hundred. I think your numbers might be a little bit low, but yeah, yeah, I get you. <laughs> it's the, like, uh, I once talked to a, a certain individual in another town here and I asked my, he was from Washington and has, and I was like, why did you come out here? Cause I Google cheap places to live. He's like, Miltonville, Kansas is on that list. I'm like, huh? Oh, okay, cool. And can, can I get access to that list and delete it? <laughs> but it's, it's the, I, I yeah, that, that term living wage, it, it's, it gets me, that one gets me riled up. <laughs> yeah. Like, how do you want to live? Like, you know, it's, it, what's a living wage to a guy, a, a homeless person? Like, is that a living yeah. wage? You know, a living wage to me, a living wage to Jeff Bezos. They're all very, very different things. And, I, it, we live in a very, very strange time in humanity. Like never in the history of humanity have we been wealthy enough where there are obese people in poverty that are unemployed. Mm -hmm. it, 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 it's unreal. If you brought somebody from 200 years ago to today and showed them the shape of people and how much we all weighed, they would just be blown away that there's that much extra food in the world. Yeah. And at how much we throw away. 
And, you know, okay, that's a great point. We're the most, you know, most efficient agriculture system, most productive agriculture system in the world. We still throw away 40% of our food. Like globally, 40% of food is wasted. It's hard to wrap your head around that, isn't it? Just the metric tons that represents. No, it's not hard. It's not hard. Okay. When, when we're at home and we're cooking and eating here at home, we don't throw food in the garbage. We set it aside for our chickens or we put it in the compost bin. And, you know, so like I said, that, you know, at the beginning, just got back from almost a week gone. We spent it in Santa Fe and we took a bunch of our own food. We, we cooked on our VRBO, I think three, four times. Had some great meals there. We only went out to eat, I think, three times the whole time we were there. Now, there, there was food at the conference, of course. but So you go out to eat. We have a real nice meal. We're, we're eight hours from home. I'm not going to pack up half that burrito and put it in styrofoam to go back to my VRBO, to put it in the fridge, to put it in the cooler, to haul it back to Kansas. That's mm. just silly. Yep. So where did it stay? It stayed there on the plate in the restaurant. And instead of going to a compost bin, it went to a garbage pile. Because, mm-hmm. okay, that's in, the, that's in town, that's in city, and you know they have, they have waste disposal problems when people get dense. I think about things like that, about, like, I'm, I'm just sitting here thinking about the food that I bought that I didn't finish eating that went in the garbage can just over the last week. And that's a lot. And... I'm not trying to waste food on purpose, but I'm also not going to eat myself sick just because it's there in front of me. You got to clean your plate. Like that wasn't, that wasn't the house I grew up in. (laughs) That's probably why I weigh 175 instead of 275. (laughs) Oh, we, we kind of got away from the thread we were trying to chase, which was equipment. And where we got off here is I started talking about food minimum wage. So I think where I was going with that is, you know, now you go into McDonald's and instead of three people behind that front counter, there's one guy and there's mm-hmm. four computer screens out front. You could walk up to that thing and tap all the buttons. Never have to talk to a human being until they scream your number out to go pick up your food. Yep. You can get on an app on your phone and order your food in the parking lot and go drive and park and they'll bring your food out to you. Yep. And you know, we technology's great. Technology's great. But when we're using a lot of technology to replace basic human skills or basic human interactions, we're shooting ourselves in the foot. You know, $25 an hour? You want $25 an hour to work at McDonald's? There's your replacement. It's the order kiosk. It's the online ordering app. That's your replacement. And when they come up with them, if McDonald's could come up with a robot that would assemble burgers, there would be nobody in the kitchen. And that's they're they're working on there. There had there is a cannot remember. I watched this uh, watched a whole video series on it where this company they actually have a fully autonomous kitchen. I believe it's in Vegas. It's a hundred percent automated. A robot does everything in there. You can watch it do everything. 
you and the only person that shows up is in the evening to clean and sterilize everything, make sure the robots serviced and function for the next day. We're 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 eliminating these base bottom level positions by demanding more than they're worth. Like you said, we're shooting ourselves in the foot. And now you don't now they're like, well, you need experience for this job. Well, what's your experience? Well, I can't get experience because well, this job no longer exists because we were wanting a gazillion dollars to do nothing, you know, do to do a, a bare minimum job. Yeah. Oh, this is an entry level position that requires a college degree and two years of work experience. Yeah. I, wait a minute. That's not what entry-level position means. <laughs> no. Yeah, that's and that's we're, we're we're seeing it already, and it's I think it's going to get worse. It it comes back to this people feeling you know like well, I I should be I I I'm entitled to a living wage. I'm entitled to X Y and Z. It's like no no you're, you're really not. You're barely entitled to breathe air. Yeah. So the size of equipment, the 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 issue with equipment is it's getting expensive. It's getting expensive because we've demanded all these capabilities. We want to be able to drive across this field with one centimeter precision. We want that tire track to be in the exact right spot. Okay, I get it. You know, if we're always you know, if we're if we're driving through the field with, and can place our tools with centimeter precision, that's good. If we have mapping that can, you know, analyze fertility across the field, you know, on uneven a meter block and correctly apply, you know, correctly apply what it needs to be applied on that grid. You know, we're being more efficient. We're saving money. But it's also it, it's a side effect of the get bigger, get out mentality. Okay. Mm -hmm. Labor has been our problem in agriculture for 40 years. And what we do is we just try to invent new technologies so that one labor unit that we all want to run a farm with, you know, ourselves, because every problem is a people problem and people, people are hard to deal with, right? Mm -hmm. Hard to find the right person, hard to get them trained, hard to trust them. And when they screw up, it's, you know, it's bad. So instead of it, it that that's been the trend in farming is a get rid of the, remove the need to move manure from the from one place up to the fields to transfer fertility right we got rid of that because we got synthetics we got to reduce our our manpower because that's just a big expense so we keep getting bigger tractors so one guy can do more work so we replace labor with machinery and that's that's been a trade off that i've seen through the last hundred or so years of history. Mm -hmm. And, you know, we're, we're to the point that things are just so complex. We can't work on them. I know, I, I know I've seen several of your videos, problems with John Deere stuff and I happen to call a service truck just because the machine won't tell you what's wrong and you can't find out. So you got to pay mm -hmm. somebody over a hundred dollars an hour to come tell you what's wrong with your machine. I, I think that's a really terrible position that we've put ourselves in. And, you know, I'm, I'm there too. I own some John Deere green and hopefully I can get rid of it in the next few years and get another, get another color that might actually let me work on it. it I don't know. I guess I'm, I'm just rambling now. 
Well, the as far as the color goes, honestly, I I stand by that one video I made where I bet pretty much everything's the same anymore. I don't care what color it is, and I, I it's I the the color rivalry just makes me just it's almost as bad as the Ford Chevy thing anymore. I'm like I don't really care. Like the they all use a C, you know like Ford and Chevy they all use a CP4 injector pump that it likes to grenade at any any moment. You know that's. Everything's overly complex. It, it's all the same. It does the same thing. It gets you the same place. I'm like, I don't really care. Only thing I really care about is parts and service. And that's honestly is the only reason why I'm green. Like, I don't have any case anywhere around an Agco's parts distribution network. If anyone from Agco is listening, your parts distribution network is garbage. Please fix it. I'll back that <laughs> up. I'll back up that statement. And I, I live... I, oh, and I live 20 miles away from an Agco manufacturing plant. <laughs> I'll say this. John Deere does have a really great parts network. Like if you need a John Deere part and it exists in the country, you can probably get it tomorrow, which yep. that's, that's really nice. But it also seems like John Deere's, need that part system behind them because they break down a lot and it seems like maybe there's some other colors that might be a little more reliable <laughs> yeah and it's, I, I can't and i can't speak to the other colors on that it's i i know they yeah it's they all break down eventually but yeah the deer really likes to like there's one thing i do enjoy about uh this like the red the red side of things good old case ih there's a lot of common parts, common bearings and stuff that I've noticed. That's a buddy of mine. He, he runs case and he it was Sunday afternoon. He lost a bearing and he goes, Oh, I'll just run over to the farm store and grab another one. I'm like, I'm sorry. What? That's I'm not familiar with this concept. I usually have to call someone in or just wait till Monday. And he's like, no, 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 that's just an industry standard bearing. I am again, I, I don't know what you're talking about. Can you, can you, <laughs> What? That's what not something about? you get. Two hundred thousand yeah, dollar piece of machinery with common industrial parts on it. What madness yeah, is this? <laughs> make it make it easy to work on. Oh no 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 no. Yeah the the year that our S six seventy was shut down because of one board in it, I was just like, are you kidding me? Now, thankfully, the kid that worked on it, I I. I He's a smart kid, and he is—he is a great way. He—he's like, well, that board, that computer is the same as the computer on the other side. They just utilize different parts of the machine of the unit. I'm gonna flip them around for you. He goes, that, he goes, because this part that's still good on this one will be used. He goes, and the part that's bad won't be used on theirs. He goes, I'll just flip them around. He got me working again. Now, granted, I had to pay, you know, the service call $150 an hour. And, you know, all of a sudden, you know, it's still a gigantic bill, but I wasn't shut down for a week and a half waiting on a computer in 2020. It was like an $800 bill for two hours. It was like, oh, we'll just put this over here and put this <laughs> over here. Oh, you're working again. Yeah. Uh, gr granted, I was happy to get back after it, but at the same time, I was like, wow, that was, that was expensive. And I probably could have done that. Dang it. <laughs> But then the flip side of that is they say, oh, well, that's, you know, that service technician is providing a very valuable job. It's highly skilled. And without him, these farmers would all be shut down. And we say, well, wait a minute. 
if we just maybe take a couple steps backwards to like, I don't know, the 9870 days and get out of these S670s, maybe we'd have a machine <laughs> that would run and be reliable. Or I mean, God forbid we go back to the 9610 days. Whoa, 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 whoa. We can't. No, that's that's crazy talk. That's <laughs> hey, I love those walker machines. <laughs> I remember when the 9600s came out. I'd been running a 7720, and those 9600s looked like a spaceship. Yep. That's my uncle ran a 7720, and that was the first combine I ever learned to cut on. And I thought that was the coolest thing, all these big levers and everything all over the place. And the the uh, to turn your auger on is that big lever by the door, the big with the hell handle. I'm like, this is so cool. And then you hop into the 9500, which we had at the time, too. And I'm like, this isn't even the same machine. Like, it doesn't make sense. And then now, like, <sighs> I love my dad to death, but I don't trust him in the S670. Every time he gets in it, he breaks something. Like, <laughs> after my concussion, I'm like, please don't break anything. He's like, oh, I got through harvest. I didn't break anything else. And I look as we're putting stuff away, I see the augers, the headers got a bunch of bent things on the reel. And I'm like, Oh, I'm gonna have to fix all that now. <laughs> yeah, i I won't share any of the dad tour stuff up stories that I've got saved up. We'll wait. <laughs> we'll keep waiting for those for a while. <laughs> Fair enough. So, politics in the future of ag. Ooh, that one. I honestly, I was expecting a lot more of a spicier response than I got from that one. I was actually a little disappointed in how that video went and how that video performed. I, I don't know if the uh, TikTok overlords like that or if they what, what the deal was on that one because that didn't perform all that well. Uh, I'm future the uh, politics of agriculture is just maddening. Like I just like on one hand, like I the arguments on crop insurance and stuff like that, you know, being subsidized by the taxpayers. So by the way, thank you all the taxpayers. Um, like I don't have such a problem with that because ensuring that the nation's food supply by keeping the farmers able to still put food on their table and provide for their families and not have to sell out to some big conglomerate. I don't think that's a, bad thing like there's some arguments to be made about how the system works and it is broken beyond belief especially for like the vegetable guys like i uh i was a big vegetable grower from california he was walking through why they don't use any sort of crop insurance with their asparagus and onions and stuff like that he said it's it, it there's no point you don't it doesn't help that needs fixed like maybe i don't know it's would you but would you rather see some of the crop insurance money, the pot of money that's you know that goes for non-edible crops like corn, soybeans? Okay, yeah, they feed cows. Whatever. We can really get into the math on that sometime later, if anybody wants to, of how much corn and soybeans actually goes to feed cows. But what if we took some of that money and started channeling it over to people that are growing lettuce and peppers and squash and beans and asparagus and onions and made it easier for them. So we'd have maybe, I don't know, a little bit 
I don't know if that'd make our food supply any healthier or any better in the long run, but I don't think it'll do anything bad. No, I don't think that would be a bad thing. I, and also, the market right now is so laser focused into, you know, corn and soybeans. Once you get up out of Kansas, it's just corn and soybeans, corn and soybeans, beans and corn, corn and beans. And there's no market for anything else because that's the market's incentivized to stay protected. So the market's like, okay, well, the money's in corn and beans right now because corn and beans are protected. That's all we're going to mess with right now. Like I looked into growing food grade sorghum a while back. My nearest plant to get that to a is Dodge City. That's like three hours of driving to get there. And it is not a fun drive to get to Dodge. And by the time I figured, I, I ran the math by the time I put it in a bin and stored it because I couldn't. It was either I was going to have to put it in a bin and store it and haul it myself or hire a trucking company to come do it. By the time I did all of that and paid their dead load back, there was no money in it for me. I had no market for it. And I, I would love to find a better market. Like I got a buddy down uh, by Wichita who apparently this there's uh, somebody that uh, some sort of company that's wanting to see mung beans. They're wanting to see some you know beans you know bean soups you know the the hard shell beans you buy in the stores and stuff like that they're wanting more of those and they're trying to get more into the market of that i'd like to see more of that around the around the country and a little less you know yeah i i and like you said yeah i get it you know corn and beans feed cows kind of you know we got there seems to be soybean oil in almost everything anymore if you're allergic to soy that you like I see, I find soy and wheat and wheat bread. I'm like, how the hell did that get into the wheat bread? But I don't know. I think there's, if we could, honestly, I just want the government out of a lot of things in general because I don't like the government putting pressure on different parts of the market because the government's terrible at that. They've always had, they've never been any good at picking winners and losers. They're they're the worst at it. And it's, I don't know. I just kind of want them out of the way to just let us be able to produce and not have to have them on our backs about everything all the time. Be careful. You're starting to sound like a libertarian. Oh, I know. That's, uh, <laughs> there's, there's a reason why I've got a copy of uh, Atlas Shrugged sitting on top of my piano here. That's, that's, uh, that Ayn Rand and I go way back. <laughs> Fair enough. I, I knew we'd get along, <laughs> <laughs> but like the, uh, it, it drives me nuts. Like with industrial hemp, with this politics side of things, like I was so excited when they're like, you know, we're in, you know, the USDA is like, Hey, we're going to, we're wanting to people to try to start growing, you know, industrial hemp, you know, we've got these uh, steps you got to go through, but we can license it out. Now you can start growing it. I'm like, Oh, heck yeah. Like I love industri the uh, industrial applications of industrial hemp, you know, roof tiles, you know, that's, you have that hemp fiber holding your tiles together, you know, just, I mean, hemp and clothing shoes, it's such a durable fiber. Then the oil, there's a lot of good uses for hemp oil and makes good. And I, too. Yep. And I also, and I started looking through the license pro pro process, which, 
again, I started smelling toast because I thought I was having a stroke reading it. It was like $10,000 just to get started with this process. And then you had to pay another fee, which was almost five figures or something like that, by the time you were done with it. And then they had to come out and test it. You were responsible for paying all the testing. And then if one plant tested hot, well, then they just nuked the whole thing. And you're just basically out all of that. And the process behind it was so is so ridiculous. And there's so much red tape. I'm just like, good Lord, get out of our way and just let us grow stuff. Like, and uh, a guy out here actually tried it. And when he realized, oh, crap, I can't spray any pesticides on this stuff. This is supposed to be for, you know, all natural, blah, 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 CBD, blah, blah, blah. And he hired a bunch of high school kids to come and pull weeds and to, you know, uh, knock the plants with a stick to knock the bugs off and stuff like that. Uh, He got in trouble because those kids did not have a background check. All those kids that were working for him were supposed to have a background check. He's like, are you? There's 16 kids here that I'm paying like $8, 10 bucks an hour or something like that to just, they're knocking on, I got to get, I got to pay for a, uh, he's like, nope, nope, nope. I, I know another guy made it work by uh, running ducks through it. I thought that was kind of neat, letting the ducks run through and eat all the bugs. That was a, a very unique, out of the box style thinking. And I know he's made it work, but then it got hot. And the THC levels were too high, and all of that was just gone. Had some, probably might have had some happy ducks for a while before he had to burn it down. <laughs> right, <laughs> but that's that's something I want the government to get out of. The, like they 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 sty- they're, they, this all this stuff is just stifling innovation and just slowing us down. I'm just let's let us loose. We farmers are very creative people. Like if like if Elon wants uh, someone to go to Mars with his group, you take a farmer who can fix anything with duct tape and some bailing wire. We'll get your rocket there. That's <laughs> one way or another. It'll get there. <laughs> might not be pretty. It might not all be the same color. Might have a few <laughs> leaks, but it'll get there. <laughs> it'll get there exactly. And but it's it's all about now. It's all about. You know, keeping your different groups happy in Washington. You've got your Farm Bureau, you know, no offense to Farm Bureau and all these other folks, whatever. I'll offend Farm Bureau. I don't care. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) uh, uh, But it's all about, you know, keeping all these groups happy. And that's all these lobbying groups are now for is just keeping the other groups happy instead of actually advocating for the individual farmer and our individual needs. It's, it's always, we need more regular, we need more of this. We need more of this instead of maybe we just need to just get out of their way and let them work. Well, that's not what governments ever do. Tyler, a a government will never, will governments don't give up power. Once they've taken it, they don't give up authority. They won't. The only thing more permanent than a temporary government program is a permanent government program. Mm-hmm. Yep. That's well, it was it Reagan that said there's nothing uh, so close to immortality as a temporary government program. Sounds like something he probably said. <laughs> and it's just, yeah, I, I'm just, I get so tired with, of, and Looking at the farm bill, like I know why the farm bill is structured the way it is. You're never going to get a clear farming, a, a clean farming bill passed. 
Like if you if you were to say, hey, we're not gonna we're not gonna put the you know, all this snap stuff. That's gonna be its own bill. It's gonna be called the snap bill. And then we're gonna have the actual farm bill. That farm bill. It, it's a political calculation because I because that bill would either a not pass, b be terrible, which it already is, but more terrible or the worst option yet. It would actually it would just get co opted to just absolutely destroy agriculture. I I can make the argument that the farm bill is I mean is and isn't destroying agriculture. Yeah. You know, it yeah, there's one. guardrails in there. The farm bill sets out, you know, how much money is gonna go for crop insurance, for commodity crops, for corn, for wheat, for beans, for cotton, for you know whatever edible crops are are insurable. And you know, the people that say, well, you can't tell me how to farm. Really? Really? Yeah. So you're farming that corn, soybean, and wheat oscillation, and nobody told you to do that. But that's what everybody else around you is doing. You plant the same time as your neighbors. You harvest the same time as your neighbors. You work ground just like your neighbors. You sell your crops to the same place as you, as you do your neighbors. Yep. Congratulations. You're doing what they tell you to do, whether you realize it or not. Yeah, I mean, it's it's not like the bank, you know, you show up to the banker and the banker's like, oh, you want to grow sunflowers and, and lavender this year? Oh, that's fine. Go right ahead. No, they want to know what you're growing. They want to know what your average is that you got to beat. They want to know that you've made your crop in. They want to know that, that crop is insured so that you'll at mm -hmm. least get that minimum, you know, that average minimum payment. They want their money back. They're in business to make money. They're not in the yeah. business of just giving money away so people can grow food and you know and grow lavender. They got to make money, which okay, that's reasonable. So the banker and the crop insurance guy kind of have you siloed into a few things. Well, then you go to your crop consultant. Your crop consultant, he's just going to tell you to buy stuff and put on there. Mm -hmm. You know, it's it's just a treadmill, and. It, it's hard for me to see a big change in the commodity system. I think where I see the change is in the small, small holders coming in and starting new farms on a small scale. Yeah. And, or some sort of market innovation that is just too groundbreaking to ignore. That's there every now and then you'll get something that'll just, you know, some new innovation, something that'll just shake up the market. So, like, that's the thing I'm waiting for the most, like, with automation, is I, there's something that there's something that is going to come eventually that will just shake the market so much that all, all of a sudden things will have to, that things will change. I don't know what it is, when it is, if, or if automation is that, or, or if something else is that. But some, that would be the only thing besides you know, a nuclear winter, that's really going to change how things are run. Uh, you're just, we're talking about automation. We've been talking about some of the problems and, you know, automation is one of the things you kind of have some hope for. And, you know, it, I'm not going to say we're running short on time. We have all the time we want, but like, I've got shit I need to go do out at the ranch. <laughs> um, I was thinking of automation is just like, a movie kind of flashed into my head and let's just say it's you so you get up in the morning 
your first stop is the laptop and you type out all the instructions or, you know, you, you set up all the instructions for your automated machinery to go out and do the stuff for the day. And you take your phone that's got like the monitoring software on it. You can tell where all your tractors are, make sure they've got fuel. They're not overheating. You know, they're, they're working hard. Like, okay, cool. You put that back in your pocket and then you get to go to your vegetable garden and you get to work in your vegetable garden by hand all day. And you go out and you tend your sheep and your goats and you check the pigs and go walk by the milk cow. And every few minutes you can pull out your phone and look and see, make sure your tractors are still doing okay. Then at the end of the day, you know, you check, make sure your tractors are going to be okay. Well, we'll park that one for the night. We'll park that one for the night and you got too much work to do. So you're going to be disking all night or planting or whatever. Automation, automation and technology are a double-edged sword for me. So here's the context that I like to think about it. You know, a lot of people like to talk about, you know, the vents callers or no fence or the virtual fencing callers, mm. which don't get me wrong. That's a really cool bit of technology. So we look at what does that technology do? It controls the movement of livestock. Yes, it can report back health data. Yes, you can get back a lot of really interesting data from it. But the basic function of that piece of technology is going to be to control the movement of that animal. Okay? So what other things do we have that can control the movement of an animal? We can set up barbed wire around it. We could run a string of poly wire around it. Mm -hmm. Or we could keep somebody out there living with the cattle to herd them around all day. So the same, the same mechanism can be accomplished with a very, very low technology operation, which is a guy on foot with a stick, mm -hmm. can be accomplished with some medium level technology like barbed wire or poly wire, or step in post, or we can accomplish it with a fully unlocked technology tree and a lot of energy to replicate the same simple tasks that we could do on foot. Yeah, I, I've never quite gotten behind the uh, the virtual fencing thing. It's just, it didn't work. It, it doesn't work for my dog. And I'm like, if it isn't going to work for my dog, who will, you know, she she goes and retrieves stuff for me. She listens to me. If she won't listen to that, I don't see a lot of, you know, some, I don't see cows respecting me. I, I, I have a really hard time getting on board with that that piece of tech. I, I'd, and you're right. Yeah, I, I think it's a lot, it's a very complicated solution to no problem at all, really. That's, it's not hard to put up some poly wire. You know, I'm not a huge fan of barbed wire anymore just because of how stupid expensive it is. And I've got way too many cuts and, you know, injuries sustained from it to really enjoy it anymore. I, 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 I'm starting to lean more into high tensile stuff, but it's it's so much simpler and easier just to take care of it that way. Uh, it's but where where I where I was seeing the autom or I'm so happy about the automation potential is, you know, I would love to be able to plant while I'm harvesting. That's I don't have I, I don't have enough people to do that right now. I can't find skilled people to do it. So it's you're, you're but at the same time it's that double edged sword you're talking about. I'm not. Now I'm not hiring somebody 
I don't, I'm not looking, I'm replacing a labor pool with technology. But at the same time, I don't have that labor pool, so I need the technology. It's, I'm almost in like a catch 22. And the more we rely on that technology, the smaller that labor pool is going to get. Right. But, and then, and then the more we're going to need it. It's, it's a, it's, it, it almost just, it's a almost never ending merry go round. But I, I like, I, I like that, like, uh, that Omni power system that I was talking about, like it's, I'm like, I could have one machine that could do three different tasks all by itself. You know, that's that, that one thing could replace and it runs on a smaller engine than what, you know, like even my planting tractor right now, it runs on a smaller engine than the tractor I'm using right now. And it does just as much work. It, it does actually could do more work than mine does. And then they designed it to be easy to work on. So a farmer can actually work on the thing. Like the, when I saw it at Husker Harvest Day, it's like we were pulling panels off and just, you know, looking at how it was all, all the hoses and wires and stuff around. I'm like, well, hell, that makes a lot of sense. But a farmer designed this? This actually looks like I could work on it. That's, I don't know. I'm kind of rambling on this one. Uh, sorry, but yeah, I'm, I'm really excited, but I'm worried, but excited at the same time. I just, I, I love new technologies and what it could mean for me. Like right now I have so many projects that I'm working on. I just don't have, there's not enough hours in the day. And I see this as a way to let me, like, I, I want to do more cross fencing in our pastures. I want to do more cross fencing when I'm grazing in cover crops. I want to be able to build some water infrastructure in places. I can't do that because I'm stuck in a tractor. And if I can get out of that tractor and I can go do some of these other projects, well, now I don't have to hire them done. And yes, that's now taking away work from someplace else, but that's allows me to have more freedom to mold my operation the way I want it molded and to go, you know, cut some trees so I don't have everybody on TikTok yelling at me for having cedar trees and thorn trees in my pasture. Hey, I've laid I've laid off. Like <laughs> I, I know you have. I, I saw one guy in there on my last video about taking the cows. I was like, good God, you need to cut all your trees. I'm like, yeah, I'll I'll get right on that. <laughs> yeah. I mean on the to-do list, it just might be two or three years down on the to-do list. Yeah, it's number 6342 and I'm on 6. We get get there someday. Like I'm watching them grow back on my place. I'm watching some little babies come and I'm I'll put my hand in my pocket and I'll feel my big lighter and I'll look at that little tree going soon. <laughs> soon. That's <laughs> uh, I wish we could do some burning around here. That's been that's been a real thorn in our everyone's side around here. We've been in burn bands now, just almost constant for the last five, six years now. Just. I, I tell you what, I'll try to remember um, after we get off here to send you some resources. Uh, Jewel County should be what? One or two to the West of you. Yep. They're they're Yeah. They're just right. Actually right next door. They've got a, they've had a really good prescribed burn association. Okay, I don't know mm-hmm. if they still have it. I went up they there did. like 12 or 14 years ago to help them set up their prescribed burn association. They do, and it's fantastic. They do a lot of good work over there. Okay, well, I, I was going to say, like, 
maybe I need to come up and help help drag some of those Jewel County boys a little bit to the east and help you get some fire on your stuff. Yeah, that's uh, I actually looked. There's a couple different places down by uh, Manhattan that they're, they actually they're they're for hire burn people. I'm like, <laughs> don't tempt me. I'll, I'll just hire you to come up here as soon as the can get the commissioners to lift their burn ban and we'll start setting the whole county on fire. Well, kind of where I was going with that was our burn association here in Barber County. We have an agreement with our fire chief and our fire board. Like even if there's a burn ban and we think we can get it done safely, we can do that as long as we're willing to accept the risk. Oh, wow. And we usually would have more trucks on a burn than the fire department could respond with within the first hour. So hey, I'm not going to say we have a perfect record. We've lost fires. We've generally gotten a hold of them before they've gotten more than about Let's see, if we have a 700-acre fire, we might have an escape. If it's seven acres, that's less than an escape of less than 10% of what you're planning on burning. Like That's not that bad of a deal. Yeah. And we've never had an escape where it's got out and caused like any damage, like killed any livestock or burn up any anybody's houses. We've never done anything like that, just burn up somebody's grass, and people are usually like, yeah, whatever, no problem. But... I mean, it, it can be a deal. And if you don't have a lot of good fire culture, um, it can take time to build up that trust with your emergency managers, with the fire department. And it's, it's been a long road, like 13 years ago, our County fire chief did not want anything to do with us. And in that period of time, we've gotten enough of their guy, enough of the guys on the fire department to come out and watch us burn or help us burn because some of them are, you know, also landowners. They've started carrying drip torches on the real fire trucks and learned how to use backfires and flank mm-hmm. fires to, you know, to move a head fire around. And it's kind of nice. Um, actually, in fact, you know, we had Anderson Creek here in 2016, which was bad. And after 2016, like there were, I'm not going to say backroom deals, but there were some, there were some agreements made like, Hey, you call us, we'll light up our radio network and we'll roll with all of our trucks, like all of our PBA trucks. Like if you need us bad, we can roll in with our own radio network, with our own support and just give us an area, just give us an area. If you want us to patrol and mop up on the backside of the fire. We will do that because we're good at that and we know how to work together and we have our own communication. So they've, we've sent, um, we've sent, we, we call it a task group. We've sent a task group from our prescribed burn association out three times since 2017 to go help on big fires. Oh, wow. Yeah. We, the, what just kind of, it kind of infuriates me around here. We, we try to burn co-op uh, a while back and, it got started off with some promise. We had a couple of guys come in and do some really good, you know, lecturing, you know, and we actually did some practical burns and stuff like that. And then the first year we did a couple of good burns and some of us actually, like uh, my family, we went and bought a, a fire, a brush truck from Lincoln County. Uh, one of those that got, it got caught in a fire, kind of messed it up a little bit, hurt one of the guys on it. And they're like, no, 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 bad juju. We don't want it. So we're like, Oh, we'll take it and we'll, we'll use it. And we, we, you know, so we 
put all that money into a brush truck and then there were a couple other people and then all of a sudden it just seemed to just stall out. No one's like, I'm not, I'm not, you know, well, once you burn my pasture, I'm busy. Oh, once you burn my pasture, I'm busy. We're like, well, no, you agreed for this. We're like, well, I'll see you in court then. And they just left. I'm like, come on now. That's, that's, we're, everybody's wanting to burn, but yet we can't get anyone to work together on it. No one will put any money into it. And goodness, it was just a, all of a sudden, it just turned into an absolute unadulterated mess. And then it ended up with us, uh, actually, a fire that I was helping work. We lost a fire. but it We were burning just a nice little 80-acre pasture. We were done. We were just doing some mop-up. Wind shifted bad. And all of a sudden, we started getting dirt devils everywhere. And it just picked up all of the embers, threw them all into the next pasture, and the wind shifted hard on us. It was not in the forecast at all, and it went. Uh, nine miles before we were able to finally get it stopped. Wow. And that day, uh, I, I had a feeling the Grim Reaper, that day, the Grim Reaper was like, just kind of standing behind me, just kind of waiting. He just had his finger just like that day. I nearly, I, I nearly met my end a couple of times that day. Cause we got hung up in some fire and then I got yeeted off the back of a truck and it's, there's some mileage on my on my frame anymore. <laughs> I've had some similar days on the back of a fire truck or in the cab of a fire truck. Yes. It's and that's difficult to understand. You know, that a situation like that might only happen a couple times in a lifetime, but it leaves a mark on a fella. It did. And it, it, it basically made a whole bunch of people like, yeah, we're not doing these anymore. And the county commissioners were like, yeah, when we say a burn ban, we mean a burn ban. Like, and they, they will cut, like, the county's like, we will issue citations. We will issue, like, they are, like, it's, they're not messing around with it. And then a lot of it is because we've got a couple of guys that light up a mall, bro, and toss it out to the field and just walk away. And then they're like, oh, oh, no, it's on fire. Better call the fire department. Yeah, that's not the kind of fire culture that's really a very healthy thing for any area. No, and it's just now just kind of balled itself up. I don't, I don't know how to unsnit. I'm, I've been trying to talk to a couple of different people to try to unsnarl this, try to figure out some different resources. I'll, I'll take any help you can, any literature resources any direction you can give me so i can start trying to talk to a couple other people to try to figure something out get something going because so many people have got a bad taste in their mouth no one wants to even move like everyone's too scared to move on it because no one wants to be that guy that sets the county on fire again yeah i i, I mean i can understand how people can get there you know I can really understand how people can get there and it's a lot of fear. It's it's boomers not having experience with fire and maybe seeing a couple bad fires in their life and not not understanding it and not knowing that it is a tool that can be very beneficial when properly applied. It can also be a tool that can go wildly wrong if mm-hmm. you're deficient in the planning process. Yep. So now there's uh Kansas Prescribed Fire Council, Kansas Prescribed Burn Association would be the two places I would start. Um, I don't know off the top of my head who your prescribed, regional prescribed fire coordinator would be. 
Um, we've got a couple of funded positions in the state that are worked through the, I can't remember if it's the Prescribed Burn Association or the Prescribed Fire Council. They're actually two different bodies and we set it up oh. that way on purpose. So we've got uh, the Prescribed Burn Association, which is mostly the landowners and it has daughter associations and chapters through the throughout the state. And we're actually the guys that are going and burning it. The Prescribed Fire Council is, is something that um, I helped get started up like a year or two after we started the Prescribed Burn Association. So we started the council as a place to dump all the agency folks and the NGOs like, you know, fish and wildlife and pheasants and quail forever and Kansas forest service. We put them all in the prescribed fire council to work on the legislative and governmental side of things. And we okay. left the association kind of a little more pure, I guess. So we wouldn't be polluted with all the NGOs and the government guys wanting the association to do things. Yeah. But, okay. That's interesting. But, yeah. Those would be the two resources um, and get in touch with whatever your prescribed fire coordinator is for your area. Um, the gentleman that serves this area is a guy named Jess Crockford and Jess is amazing. Like he's, he's very much a pyromaniac, but he's very good at hiding it. <laughs> <laughs> nice. Uh, I guess it comes with the territory there. <laughs> When Jess shows up on burn day and is in his little Ford F-150 and unloads his four-wheeler and he puts on his yellow gear, it's like, <laughs> I know where I can put you, sir, and I know it'll mm -hmm. be done right. Yeah. Well, hey, I got to get out of here. I got to go do, I need to go do some work. It's been way too long yeah, since I've done any actual ranch work. So yeah. what would you like to end with? Hmm. It's don't be afraid of change. Don't be afraid to get outside your comfort zone, start small, but keep trying. Don't be afraid to change. Just keep trying something new and you'll be amazed at what you can accomplish just by staying current, staying new, trying something different. You never know what you're going to stumble onto. You may stumble onto something that'll change your whole mindset. Awesome. Great stuff. Where can people find you if they want to connect or harass you or tell you you're wrong? Well, at the moment, uh, I'm just uh, mostly on TikTok. I do have a Facebook and an Instagram, but they've been largely inactive just because there's not enough hours in the day anymore. Um, although I, I hope to change that. Uh, right now, just mostly TikTok. Is, you can find me at JTAC Farms. I also have my email and my bio. So again, if you want to tell me how wrong I am and you're that dedicated, go ahead and shoot me an email. I may ignore it. <laughs> <Fair enough. laughs> Glad you didn't ignore the email I sent you to do this podcast with me. Right. That's no, I, I thank you for having me on. I had a blast. It's I, I, I hope we can meet up at soil health. You, uh, in January, I'm, I'm planning on being there. I've already told the old man. I'm like, Hey, just BT dubs. I'm, I'm gone this day. Just, awesome. just expect. Uh, and, I, don't, I don't know if I've got my tickets or hotel for soil health you, but it's definitely on the calendar. Yeah. And then I'm also, uh, I've also got a, uh, oh, I, I keep wanting to say it's a guest lecture, but it's not, I'm doing a presentation at green covers, uh, Iola conference in, I think that's the 29th and 30th of November. 
um, doing a presentation on cover crops, crop rotation, stuff like that. I'm on their, and I'll be on their uh, panel for Q&A afterwards. Hoping to do a live and stuff like that while I'm out there as well. Very cool. So that's just coming up in a couple weeks. This episode should be out before then. So hopefully somebody will come up to you and say, hey, I heard you on Ranching Reboot. <laughs> awesome. Well, I had a great time, Brian. Thank you for the invite. This was a ton and a half. I hope a ton and a half of fun. I hope we can do it again. We're going to have to because I only got through like half the stuff on my sheet. Like we didn't even talk about, you know, your monuments to tax avoidance, your solar off-grid shop. We didn't really get into <laughs> theater trees. We didn't even talk about drones or coffee. So we got plenty of crap to talk about. Oh, here. my gosh. I could talk about a lot about coffee. <laughs> I could talk about how much I love to drink it. Exactly. Been drinking it since I was two. <laughs> That's a few years. I got hooked on it when I was in the Navy, but. That's another story. For another time. For another time. All right. Well, Tyler, thank you. It has been a lot of fun, and uh, we'll definitely continue this some other time. And uh, listeners, um, go get it. We'll see you next week. If you enjoyed this episode, don't forget to like, share, and subscribe to our podcast. We'd also love to hear your thoughts, so leave us a review if you haven't already. And don't forget to check out the Q&A and the polls on Spotify. Your support helps us bring more enlightening conversations and fresh stories from the world of farming and ranching. Thank you for listening to Ranching Reboot, your favorite regenerative ag podcast.